Objection. You really going to Hong Kong? I love anything with full contact. I need a few more scars on my face. I heard you can get killed at that comité. Only if you fuck up. Episode 195 of GBW Podcast is on the air, I guess, whenever you're listening to this. <laughs> My name is Chris, and with me, as always, is Josh. Hello. What's up? Nothing much. Nothing much. Well, <laughs> it, it's there's been a lot of turmoil going on around, which we we'll, won't get into, but that's why you I, had- I just had a giant piece of chocolate cake, so I'm hoping that my energy level oh, spikes. A giant piece? How big of a piece? <clears throat> well, not giant, giant. Like, are we talking like a, a six-year-old birthday party, giant piece of chocolate cake? No, it, was, it wasn't that giant. And it was like shitty cake, like that didn't really taste like chocolate. You know when you get chocolate cake and it doesn't really taste like chocolate, it just tastes like sweet? That's what it was. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm hoping it gives me some energy. Get, then... get some energy out because we've got like over 20 movies to talk about today. Yeah. Um, but before we get that, I'm just going to would quickly like to do a uh, RIP to Code Red's Bill Olson because we yes. just, just recently left us. Um, say what you will about the guy. His company is one of the first boutique labels who really focused on bringing exploitation and obscure and and b movies and stuff like that to us um you know like movies like you know blackout the 1978 you know siege movie and like devil times five blue monkey most recently and you know blast fighter a movie you've enjoyed in the past and things like that um i just want to bring him up because it is he was an important figurehead in boutique movie collecting which you know josh and i are both well caught up in that quicksand in that quagmire that is movie collecting. Um, and I also just wanted to mention that he does, his brother has set up a GoFundMe, which uh, to help pay for a lot of the costs, which you can get to that through our Facebook discussion group. If you want to donate, uh, that's really all I got to add, unless you have anything else. No, I just think anyone who bought anything from code red and enjoyed it should donate. I mean, the guys like, can't afford to bury his brother yeah so um i think you know the least we can do is give him a few bucks to help with that yeah it's 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 a unfortunate unfortunate thing but if you guys can do a little bit i'm sure it'll help but i just yeah. have to throw that out there right off the bat before we dive into multiple movies and uh let's start off with a movie josh that i know you like and a movie that i know i like but I was feeling one day like, you know what? I'm going to watch something that I know I like and something that I know I like every time I watch it. So I watched Bloodsport from 1988. Nice. Because this is the ultimate tournament movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, Josh and I are not secretive about the fact that we love tournament movies. This is the one where if you are unsure what a tournament movie is, and you want to know what the standards of a tournament movie is and how they should play out, Bloodsport has got you covered. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one because um, I can't remember if you actually talked about it on the show or if 
I did. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't remember how long ago we've talked about so many fucking movies on this thing that I sometimes forget, but I'm pretty sure you did. So I'm going to keep this short anyway. Um, so released in 1988 by Canon films. We all know I love Canon films. And this was like the end of the real good era of Canon films. This is before they kind of Golan and Globus started hating each other and split apart and did their own thing. Um, directed by Newt Arnold, which Josh talked about on one of his Mill Creek adventures with for a little movie called Bloodthirst that he talked about, but also known as uh, a big time first assistant director on many Hollywood movies, uh, The Godfather, Blade Runner, William Friedkin Sorcerer, among other Friedkin movies. So, you know, this guy's been around. He knows what he's doing. He only directed three movies in his entire career. And Bloodsport just happens to be one of them. <laughs> um, so this is Jean-Claude Van Damme in his first real starring role, playing a guy called Frank Dukes. Now, Frank Dukes is a real person. This movie is purported to be based on real events. Of course, over the years, a lot of this stuff has been kind of shown to be false. For example, uh, Dukes claims to have taken part in many of these top secret fighting tournaments, which turns out probably didn't happen. Um, And he also claims to have been an undercover CIA agent at one time or another. So it's a very interesting kind of character. I uh, did the fight choreography for this movie, among other things. And uh, that's who Van Damme's playing here. And basically Van Damme's character, he kind of, you know, leaves the army, sneaks off to Hong Kong to take part in this thing called the Kumite. And the Kumite is a top secret underground fighting tournament where all the best fighters in the world are invited. They show up. And they beat the shit out of each other while people bet on them. So it's kind of like a Enter the Dragon kind of a deal, too. But without the, really without the crazy overlord. But we do get a guy called Chong Lee, played by Bolo Yuan, who is fucking amazing in this. Um, so basically, he goes off to fight the Kumite, runs into various characters. We meet uh, Donald Gibbs from Revenge of the Nerds as his as fellow American fighter Jackson, who's kind of like this rambunctious, burly kind of biker type guy who instantly becomes friends with Frank and has this bro love thing going on through the whole movie, which I love Donald Gibb in this movie. I'm not mm-hmm. going to lie. He's so fun to watch. And, you know, and he ends up being beaten up by Chong Lee to set in motion the finale of this movie. This isn't a secret, but he's great in this and him and Van Damme play off each other pretty well. I mean, Van Damme's not a great actor in this because it's early, but Gibb kind of props him up and it's like brings him into it. We've got Lee Ayers from The Burning playing this female reporter who's kind of there to look into see if this Kumite exists, but also to be Van Damme's love interest. Cause after all, this is a late eighties martial arts movie. So you need to have a female character for our hero to get kind of in cahoots with. Um, we've got Bolo Yoon as Chong Lee, the main bad guy who is the guy who was undefeated at the Kumite and has a tendency to murder his opponents as the main villain in this. And then we also get Norman Burton, who's a character actor who's in like Towering Inferno, Diamonds Are Forever, things like that. And Forrest Whitaker, super early Forrest Whitaker, as two like military police types who are sent to track down Frank Dukes in Hong Kong. And I got to tell you, dude, 
I don't think there's much more charming than fucking seeing Forrest Whitaker attempting to use chopsticks at a, at a, <laughs> at, at a restaurant. Like it, I saw it. I just fucking started grinning. I'm like, there he goes. He's spearing that shit now. Cause he can't figure out how to use the chopsticks <laughs> and he's just smiling to himself while he's doing it. I love scenes like that in like just these throwaway scenes in these action movies. I love it when they just go for shit like that because you yeah. don't expect it. Right. Um, so basically this, like I said, tournament movie that you want get everything you want it's got training sequences it's got flashbacks it's got great fights like the fights in this are top notch like the choreography that's in this is some of the best of the 80s i think personally um we've got the final showdown with chong lee and we've just got everything that you need from this type of movie including van damme doing the splits between things at least four fucking times in this thing <laughs> and, and that's what he became known for is 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 van damme gonna do the splits is he fucking movie after this kickboxer yeah he did the fucking splits because that's just what he does back then <laughs> when he's young and limber um and you know and this thing fucking has a amazing stan bush song called blood sport kumite where in the middle of the song everyone just starts chanting kumite 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 and it's <laughs> fucking amazing like amazing stan bush also did the song the touch for the transformers the movie which also was sung by mark Wahlberg in boogie nights yeah. so you know i can't complain about stan bush having a song in this but uh yeah this is a great entertaining late 80s canon martial arts movie and to this day i think that this is probably van damme's best movie yeah as far as as far as i'm concerned like i really do like hard target you know and but that's because john woo more than it is van damme let's be honest and you know i the thing about van damme is we've talked about these action guys in the past right like you look at seagal the guy doesn't give a fuck anymore right at least van damme and lundgren are still out there making these movies and they're still like we we give a crap like we still want to give something to our fans that they'll enjoy, yeah. you know, we'll do our best. So that's, you, you can't fault the guy. I mean, out of the three, he's, he's probably middle of the act of the acting skill there. Like I think Seagal really was good early in his career and then just stopped giving a shit. Yeah. Probably like right after under siege Two, Seagal's like, ah, fuck it. I'm done. I'm not even going to bother anymore. And I think Lundgren has always kind of, you know, being like, I'm just going to do the best. Like I'm going to give it my all. And I think he's actually a pretty decent actor in these kind of things, to be honest. I think he, yeah. he has more of a, I think his line delivery is probably the best of the three of these guys, but, uh, but Van Damme, he does what he does in this. Bolo Yuen does what he does in this. Um, uh, fucking great movie. Lots of fun. And, and, and Bolo Yuen is a, a guy who wasn't so many Hong Kong, movies in the 70s and kind of had his american debut in enter the dragon and then went on to be in kind of a mix of hong kong and american action movies including one that i really like that's hard to come by called shoot fighter which i think is a pretty great also early 90s action movie so uh three sequels to this all without van damme probably don't you don't really have to bother with those particularly but if you've never seen Bloodsport. You need to get on it because it's a it's a it's a blast of a tournament movie and my favorite tournament movie. Yeah, I agree. Do you do you have that 
Blu-ray or the it's like a double feature, right? Yeah, I have the double feature with Time Cop, and it it doesn't look very good. Yeah, it's really a shame. It doesn't look very good, and it it, it doesn't have any special features. But apparently, um, the guy uh, Austin Trunick, who wrote the uh, Canon Film Guides, those pretty rad big volumes of uh, that. F- to, I can't remember the company that published them, but they're great. You can get. I have the first volume. Uh, he says there's a German blu-ray of Bloodsport coming out with all new interviews and all sorts of stuff so I'm gonna, oh cool gonna keep my eye open for that since i am region free but uh you know watch Bloodsport. that's all i gotta say watch Bloodsport. yeah agreed okay well <laughs> seeing as you talked about mill creek uh, for briefly uh let's let's get that one out of the way oh starting with mill creek this is weird <laughs> <laughs> so Need a sip of beer for this one. The gift that keeps on giving. I forgot to say it. Not always. Um, I know, but I gotta. Per- <laughs> I gotta pretend. You know, you gotta justify these two hundred movies you're making your way through. It's true, and yeah, and it's times like this where I'm just like, uh, anyway. <laughs> and I'm in the middle of this action pack right now, so I've been actually pretty enjoying them all quite a bit. All the Leo Fong stuff and. Top Cop or whatever it was called. The There's one, one the specific episode. one I'm waiting for, and you haven't done it yet. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think it was this one. So this is called The Silencer. No, it's not. <laughs> from 1982. Directed by Amy Goldstein. Okay, so this opens kind of cool. It's did you say not, sorry, did you say 92? 82, sorry. 1982. Because okay. I thought if it was 92, I've seen this movie, but, you know, I, I think it's 82. It actually feels like 92, but it, it, uh, I wrote down 82, but I've been a bit of a mess this last couple of weeks. So maybe I fucked up. 92. Unlikely though. Amy Goldstein. Oh, Amy Goldstein. I did fuck up. Wow. Not, that, not 92. Sorry. Everybody. Well, everyone that doesn't happen very often, but it anyway. doesn't, but it did. <laughs> and now we're moving on. <laughs> 1992, directed by fucking Amy Goldstein. Um, okay, so this opens kind of neat. It's got kind of a, it's got a video game beginning. Oh, here's why, why I got confused. Okay, it's got this video game beginning where we see the kind of different characters in like an old side scroller game type setting. And that, that was kind of fun. And then it's got a, a, a theme song that is kind of like a Bond theme ripoff sung by carol pope from the canadian band rough trade really yeah and uh i i've carol pope if you you might know her she's they they had a hit called high school confidential that a lot of people probably know great song and she's got a very distinct voice so it was kind of i knew who it was right away and um i thought it was kind of cool hearing her try and do a bond theme and um and then she actually does i think the music overall overall for the movie really so uh, a lot of carol pope in this that's kind of cool because i just i just actually listened to avoid freud their first album the other day so oh nice um okay so then that we also then very quickly we also get introduced to um character actor that's come up on the show before chris mulkey okay playing a like badass which kind of like what for a couple of episodes ago who was it it was uh, greg henry same same idea where i'm like 
I'm, I just don't really picture this yeah. actor yeah. as a badass. After seeing him in that all night long with Gene Hackman, neither do I. Yeah, right. Exactly. So what a terrible movie that was. Um, okay. So Chris Mulkey is like, he's kind of like this, he's kind of, he's kind of the villain, but he just keeps kind of popping up. So, okay. I'll just try and go through the plot here. What I could make of it. So we've got this woman named Angel, played by Lynette Walden. She's been in a few things, not too much, but really, you know, nice looking woman here. And she's kind of a hit woman. And I think what happens is she, to get her next job, she goes and plays this video game. And in the video game, when she's playing it, it tells her who her next target is it's really kind of strange. And so like, she'll start playing the game and then it will be like target Bob. And then it will be like, it will tell you like where Bob hangs out and what his weaknesses are. And then off she goes to off Bob. But then Chris Mulkey's kind of always lurking around in the background and he'll like then go over and, and find, look at the game as well and figure out where she's gone and then kind of like trail her like a stalker. And then there's all this voiceover from Chris Mulkey going, you really like to play the game, don't you? And shit like that. And it's really annoying. He talks about playing the game over and over and over again. And it turns out that he's, I think, like either her ex-boyfriend or her ex-boss, and he's stalking her. Anyway, we then have her kind of just going through the movie, um, doing different jobs, she meets a few different guys and like hooks up with the guys, one of whom is Paul Gannis from Crash and Burn. Um, she has a brief nude scene, which is by far the high point of this movie. And it, yeah, it was definitely, definitely worth a watch for, for that. Um, she's quite an attractive lady. Um, there's also a, a, a scene where she dresses as a nun, kind of like, um, it kind of looks a bit like Ms. 45, which was kind of nice. Um, but it's just her kind of doing these doing these jobs and Mulkey stalking her and 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 doing all this weird voiceover. Um what else? We get uh Morton Downey Jr. showing up. Now, if you don't know who this guy is, he was just like obnoxious talk show host in the 90s, and this is before his show. And he like would go on and just be, he was smoking all the time and just being unpolitically correct ass. And uh, it kind of became, it was a shtick. So this is before that when he had a bit of an acting career. Um, So we get to see him playing like one of the, one of the guys she has to go and kill. So if you ever want to see Morton Downey Jr. get killed with a strawberry, um, this is your movie. Um, we get Anders Ho- uh, Hove shows up. Um, Anders Hove, if you're a, if you're a Full Moon fan, you'll know him as Radu from the Subspecies movies. He shows up in kind of a funny scene where he's playing a movie director, so that was kind of fun. Um, there's a not joke in this. I haven't heard a not joke in a while. Um, what was that Wayne's World that started not, or was it Bill and Ted? I think it was Wayne's World. I don't remember there yeah. being one in Bill and Ted. So I haven't heard a not joke in a while, so that was kind of fun. Um, there's a scene where Walden says, no glove, no love, which I, ha- <laughs> I, I haven't heard since the 90s. So the, cool. well, every time everyone says that, I just think, <laughs> do you remember that? Do you remember that band M.O.D.? 
method of destruction. Oh, yeah. I remember they had a song in the nineties that was no glove, no love, young gum full of cum. <laughs> really yeah mod mod yeah now there is a band where the guy is a fucking oh my god billy milano the the singer well you want to talk about political viewpoints holy shit anyway that's the okay point is he a trumper uh i'm pretty positive he is yeah 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 he's just one of those like anti-immigration anti this anti that kind of like america chest thumping like even uh, back even back in the early days of like well, mod and sod think about it i mean sod had a song called speak english or die yeah they weren't they weren't yeah yeah so anyway that's um, besides the point yeah i mean it was and i you know it was kind of sexy with watching walden like making out with this dude i mean i was kind of like why are you like leading this guy on so much but anyway she and then she like stops and is like no glove no love and walks away and i'm like wow that dated this movie big time <laughs> there wasn't that like an ad campaign for safe sex back in the day too right it was yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah but yeah it's it's mainly just her kind of drifting through this movie and doing these different jobs and yeah it was it was kind of boring i i didn't really like this one i did have a bit of style to it um I, you know, I read some reviews after and people, I think, are trying to find something in here that maybe isn't there. Like, I, I didn't, I, I just thought this was kind of lame. If it wasn't for her and it wasn't for her dude scene, I would really not have anything good to say about this. Mm. Like the, um, yeah, there had, it had a few decent moments like that nun scene, but overall, this was just kind of a by the numbers, kind of boring, kind of like, too many characters just and then they kept cutting to these video game things and Mulkey was just like unnecessary like and, and annoying so i don't know i mean i guess if you're a huge fan of that guy and really want to see him and in, in kind of he's usually like a fourth or fifth build type of character uh, if you yeah. want to see him as kind of a co-lead um maybe this is your movie but uh yeah this is what i uh definitely uh could have done better things with 90 minutes but i soldier on for you listeners as, as i make my way through this ridiculous 200 movie set what uh, what what number is this i i said it last time i can't remember oh 78 oh so you're not even halfway <laughs> yeah like it's starting to feel like like if i was on a marathon or like when you climb like there's a there's, <laughs> There's like a, a thing called the gross grind here and there's other like hikes like that. But when you're like climbing it and then you're like, you're like tired and you're only at the quarter mark, it's just like, oh my God. And that's kind of how I'm starting to feel right now. <laughs> but there have been a few good ones in, in recent episodes. So I'll just hope that this was just a blip. I, I remember not minding this when I saw it on VHS, but I have. Oh, you've seen this. I haven't seen it since VHS, and I absolutely remember nothing about it. I just remember the VHS cover had like this sexy girl holding a gun, like fucking black leather or something. So that's probably why I rented it. Yeah, I mean, she she does dress in some sexy outfits. She's got the topless scene. I mean, it's she's she's. I wish she was in more stuff. Let's just put it. Th I mean, she was in stuff, but. Just not enough. I, I wish she was in more stuff. I would have followed her career a little more. But anyway, I'm. I'm. Uh, that's the silencer. Well, maybe next episode's the one I'm waiting for. <laughs> maybe <laughs> you'll know it when you see it, Josh. I hope it's worth it, man. Yeah, but uh, you'll know it when you see it. You'll know why. Um, okay. Okay. So let's talk about the Great White Hype from 1996. 
so this one is a boxing comedy that I've never seen. Uh, I was curious about it simply because it's stars Samuel Jackson and it's co-written by Ron Shelton, who made Bull Durham among other things. And Bull Durham's probably my favorite baseball movie, uh, probably my favorite baseball movie of all time. Maybe pride of the Yankees is pretty close, but um Co-written by him with Tony Hendra. Tony Hendra is a guy who was a British comedian, mostly known for like, uh, you know, he did write a bunch of stuff, but he wrote, uh, he helped George Carlin finish his autobiography when George Carlin had, was just passed away. He finished that book off for him. He was also the manager in This Is Spinal Tap. He played the manager in, in that movie. So you'd know him if you saw him, but he co-wrote this too. Uh, so this opens in Las Vegas and it's a, t- it's a title fight. And the champion's this guy called Reaper, played by Damon Wayans. And he has this over-the-top manager who who's calls himself a reverend. And he's got wacky hats. And he's called Sultan. And he's played by Samuel L. Jackson. So they have this title fight. Reaper does his thing, wins the fight. But then after the, after the match is over, all of Sultan's cronies and, you know, you know lackeys come up to him as like, yeah profits are really down he's like we're we're not really making any money right now like for some reason no one's really that interested in reaper anymore or you know no one really wants to watch him anymore so and and meanwhile the wayans character is like i want my 10 million dollars you know like you guys owe me 10 million dollars for this fight and they're like shit we gotta like keep this 10 million so we can you know fund all this other stuff so we got to try and figure out how to you know, trick him so we don't have to pay him by giving him these gifts or throwing him off the side. And, you know, and, and there's this like scene where he comes in to get his money and it's this after party and, and, you know, Wayne's character comes in, he's really upset. And, and, you know, it's this really funny moment where Sultan, the Jackson character comes up to him and he keeps saying to him constantly, I love you. I love you just to try and distract him. And it's pretty funny. Uh, it, it works pretty good. And then the Reverend decides that they need to get a great white hype, as the title says, so that they can like make oodles of cash because people want to see a battle of the races, basically, is what he decides. He's like, people want to see a black guy versus a white guy. This is how we're going to make our money. So they're like, we're going to scour and find someone to fight the champion at a pay-per-view. And they find... Terry Conklin, played by Peter Berg. Now, Peter Berg's a guy who was active for a little bit, but now is mostly known as a director. He did like very bad things and other movies like that. Um, You know, and he's like the only guy who beat the champion when he was an amateur boxer. And he's now in this grunge band called Massive Head Wound. And it's funny because the first time we see him, they go to this grungy nightclub and he's playing a song on stage with his long hair and everything and the song that they're performing is a song by a band called local h who i actually really like so i was like what the fuck they're using a local h song in this Hmm. and um you know and it just goes from there as the lead up to the final showdown and and the reverend trying to make all this money and everyone being unhappy with what the reverend's doing and, uh, you know, and it just manages to irreverently capture the world of boxing and promoters, you know, and it does it pretty good. I f- was amused at times during it. And it's it's got a it's basically uh, a thinly veiled story about race and how anyone can be bought. Like, for example, one of the character 
as this reporter played by Jeff Goldblum, who's like this, you know, he's like this serious reporter who wants to get the scoop. And eventually he gets bought out by the reverend because he's convinced to work for him because he's like waves dollar signs in front of his face, basically. So it's basically that story, but it's got a, a, a pretty good cast here. We've got like uh Goldblum, like I said, we've got Jamie Foxx showing up, who's the manager of the number one contender, who's not given a title shot because the Reverend would rather make money than actually deal with the sport. You've got Cur- Corbin Burnson and Cheech Marin showing up as kind of the Reverend's, some of his lackeys. And, uh, you know, it's just got a lot of people in this that I was surprised to see show up in this. And uh, I, I kind of liked this, to be honest. I thought it was a pretty funny entertaining 90 something minutes and went by pretty fast and everyone was fine. And I don't usually like Damon Wayans that much, to be honest. Like I, he kind of irritates me because I watched this other movie called uh, Marcy X recently with him, with him and uh, Lisa Kudrow, where he plays like a, a gangster rapper type. And he kind of got on my nerves in that. And he kind of got on my nerves when he was doing all the stuff with his brothers. So I actually thought he was pretty good in this because it gets to a point in this where he just stops caring about the match because of the way he's being treated and just starts like eating ice cream and putting on all this weight and doesn't give a shit if he's fit and stuff like that. And I liked him in this and and I thought Berg being a super dumbass and just being so like not sure himself. He's just like, he always wants to win the fight so he can help the homeless and all this stuff. And he's just like this crusader and he was pretty good too. So this was a pretty fun little movie. And, uh, you know, we get some random cameos from Brian Setzer from the Stray Cats doing like Danny Boy at the main event and Method Man coming out and doing a rap song to introduce the other fighter. And it's just this big, elaborate Hollywood comedy that is better than it probably deserves to be. Uh, Reginald Hudland was the director. And before this, he made uh, the first House Party movie and he made Boomerang with. Eddie Murphy, two pretty decent little movies, to be honest. Um, so yeah, it, this is easy to come by on DVD. It's like five bucks, I think, to get it brand mm-hmm. new. If you like sports comedies, you could do a lot worse than The Great White Hype for sure. Uh, you know, pretty pretty forgotten mid nineties kind of movie, but I, I had fun with it. I enjoyed my time with it. So yeah, Great White Hype. Nice. All right. Well, uh, seeing as we're still in noir November, um, we're doing another noir. Um, starting to feel like noir all year for me, but uh, that's okay. Um, there's so many to get through. Well, but, there's so um, many coming out from Tino. <laughs> yes, there are. Um, and Indicator. Um but uh, I decided to watch one of the, another one of the big heavy hitters that's on everyone's top 10 lists that I've never seen before. And that is Out of the Past from 1947, directed by Jacques Tournier. Um, of course, uh, gave us movies like Cat People and Curse of the Demon and I Walked with a Zombie. So he's a, uh, he was a big genre director. And then I actually didn't know he dipped into noir. He's been in so many genres, but, uh, but did a lot of horror stuff earlier before this movie. Um, so I was surprised to see his name, but pleased to as well, because I know he's, he's got chops. Um, so this is uh, starring Robert Mitchum and uh, 
you know, again, it's always so weird watching guys like Robert Mitchum and Kirk Douglas, who are both in this at the age of 30 and realizing how much younger they are than me. Um, <laughs> because I'm just like, these guys are like old dudes because I guess I grew up with them. And uh, in uh, anyway, it's always it's always very strange. But uh, anyway, Robert Mitchum stars as this guy named Jeff Bailey. And he's um, this guy. He's just trying to like he's, he's living in a small town, runs a gas station, and then an old colleague named Joe comes to visit, uh, played by Paul Valentine. And um, what this does is it leads Mitchum to um, basically he's he's in a relationship. He and he's like, I, we, I need to go resolve some shit now that this Joe guy's come, and I've got to like tell you some shit about what's happened in my life so they off they drive to lake tahoe they're 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 in california they drive to lake tahoe and we get this he starts recounting like what's happened to him in his life and he goes through how he and then it goes into like an extended flashback and it's all about how he was kind of this um he calls himself a detective but he like he works for bad people. So he gets a job working for Kirk Douglas, um, playing a character named Wit. And Kirk Douglas wants Mitchum to find this woman who basically shot him, Kirk Douglas, and stole some money and took off. So he's like, Robert Mitchum, you need to go find this woman. That's your job. So Mitchum accepts. He uh, tracks her down to Mexico. So there's uh, quite this. There's whole this whole sequence takes place in Mexico. Um, tracks her down to this small town, and of course, as this is a noir, he ends up kind of falling for her. Um, and then it just kind of goes through that and what kind of happens with that. And of course, this being a noir, it doesn't really end well. So we then kind of find out how Mitchum um, got into the current situation he's in now that this Joe guy has kind of resurfaced. Um, so he then ends up um, um, getting on to some other kind of adventures, um, working with Kirk Douglas again, um, and then just kind of the stuff from what happened in that in Mexico keeps resurfacing. And uh, I'm going to kind of leave it there because it's one of the, it's a pretty intricate plot and I don't want to like ruin it for people. Um, this was written by an, a guy named Daniel Mainwaring who, um, and it was based on his novel, but Mainwaring also is uh, responsible for giving us Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is in my opinion, one of the best sci-fi movies of the classic era. Um, we get um, a number of, of other actors showing up, um, like Rhonda Fleming plays a woman named Mita. She was in The Spiral Staircase. Uh, Richard Webb um, plays a, um, a lovelorn guy who uh, wants Mitchum's current girl. Um, and Richard Webb, I know you've just watched the movie. Actually, I just watched the movie as well that um, you would liked quite a bit with him. Um, he played the sheriff in Beware the Blob um, later in his career. Uh, Virginia Hudson also um, stars in this as Anne, who's uh, 
uh, Mitch's current woman. And she she was actually the one who really stood out for me, more so than uh, Jane Greer, who played uh, the Kathy, the woman from Mexico. Um, I get Greer had a had a kind of a meatier part in this, but I really liked Hudson's portrayal of this uh, character who was with this guy who had this shady past and, and how she kind of wanted to deal with that and what still wanted to be with him. I thought she was pretty fantastic. And I actually wish she was in more stuff. Um, this is like one of these movies where, um, you know, a lot of, one of the big things about noir is, is the dialogue and people talk about it all the time. And a lot of the movies I've talked about that hasn't really stood out. This is one where it totally stands out. There's Mitchum is so fucking cool in this movie and just the lines he spews out of that's come out of his mouth are just, it feels like every line's kind of a classic. Um, along with Jane Greer. I mean, she has some great, great lines as well. So the dialogue in this is spot on and, uh, and really, really enjoyable to watch these people. I really like th- seeing how everything played out. Douglas was a pretty great villain. Um, he's, he's, he can be a, a really good asshole when he wants to be. Um, I've seen Kirk Douglas do this a number of times. There was that one movie, it's, it's based around Hollywood, where he's also really good as, as this kind of asshole guy. So um, a lot of us just know Kirk Douglas as kind of a hero or a Spartacus, but he can, he, can, he can kind of do it all. And this was like, I think his first real big role. This was his third movie that he ever made, and he knocked it out of the park. So really, really great. And, um, um, from that perspective as well. So this one, um, you know, I, I, you know, unlike a movie like Murder My Sweet, where I didn't quite get it, like this one, I totally understand, like why this has has a place where it is. Um, it's not a typical noir again. Like they're not just all, you know, dark shadows on the streets and stuff. It's they, you know, they get out of the city at times. You know, with this these Lake Tahoe scenes, it does go to it goes to Mexico, it goes to San Francisco. Um, it's it's got multiple different locations, um, and there's a small town in California as well. So it is it is a bit different, and uh, I do like how how some of these kind of break the mold. And um, yeah, very enjoyable one. This is from Warner. Um, it's in it's in my Warner one of my Warner Noir box sets, the very first one actually. Um, Interestingly, um, Mitchum wasn't the first choice for the lead. It was uh, originally going to go to Humphrey Bogart, who turned it down. And then it was going to go to John Garfield, who didn't do it. And then it was going to go to Dick Powell, who didn't do it. And then eventually went to Mitchum. And I think this is one of these, like, when I think of Robert Mitchum moving forward, I'll be thinking of this movie. Um, It was remade in the 80s as Against All Odds which I did not know. Oh, really? Huh? Yeah. And Jane Greer and Paul Valentine both appear in that movie. So I'm interested to see that now because I always thought of it against all odds. as a stupid thriller romance thing with a shitty Phil Collins song. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah. Um, yeah, it's a remake of one of the past. All, so all I ever picture of that <laughs> is just the whole Jeff Bridges. I make it out with the girl and, Take a look at me now. Yeah. So, but, you know, Jeff Bridges, I love him, but I just can't see him doing a Robert Mitchum character. Although I can see James Woods playing the, the uh, Kirk Douglas character for sure. But I think, you know, 
I don't think the, let's just say I don't think the remake's going to come close to this one. But it, yeah, check it out if you uh, if you're a noir fan and you haven't seen Out of the Past. Uh, yeah, it's definitely worth the. Re- it definitely lives up to the reputation. I have a uh, I I have a region two DVD of this movie that I have nice. watched. So and and I really after Night of the Hunter, I'm just like Robert Mitchum was kind of a badass in the in the fifties and forties. It looks oh like. yeah, and he was getting arrested for like a pot and stuff. And yeah, man. like he, he was kind of a badass back then. So and what was it? Was he the one who was in that Thunder Run too? The the Thunder Road or Thunder or Thunder Run, yeah. Thunder Road, the moonshining yeah. movie. Yeah, I gotta see yeah. that one too because he was pretty badass back then. He really yeah, was because yeah. you don't. I just you know I picture him in like the late seventies playing like you know politicians and stuff like that when he was like a little bit older too, and you just don't realize how cool he was. Yeah, he was you, really and, fucking cool until you watch stuff like that. So yeah, cool. I uh, I should check that one out too. You're you're giving me too many fucking noir movies that I don't have enough time to watch, Josh. Yeah, I'm gonna do a ranked list actually, just to help people because you know there's been some stinkers too. So, but I mean, yeah, some of these definitely. Well, w- with this one and the one you talked about last time, the uh, witness. What's it called? Witness to execution or something like that that you talked about last episode. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah, another one. Yeah, I mean that sounded really good too. Witness so. to murder. Witness yeah. to murder. That's it. That's yeah, it. That was a good one. It. Yeah, yeah, so I I got all these ones and I unfortunately can't find the time because yeah. I watched a couple of movies that I'm going to talk about now that I purely watched basically on who's in them and got poor results from both. So <laughs> so let's start with the TV movie of the duo. A movie that you can readily find in any public domain DVD format ever, because it's probably been released 70,000 times. It's from 1975. It's called Strike Force, a television movie that is only known and only advertised as the fact that it's one of Richard Gere's earliest movies and really the only reason anyone cares about Strike Force, to be honest. Um, I think this was a failed pilot for a cop series. Uh, But gear wasn't really the only reason that I had picked this one out. I mean, he was part of it, but we'll talk about other reasons that I watched this one. So, uh, you know, right off the bat, I was like, okay, when you're, when your movie opening, when the opening scene in your, in your crime film features a criminal, meeting up with like meeting up in the in a garbage dump like these guys show up at this garbage dump and there's this like you know kind of this rv kind of cabin in there like a portable basically and they show up they have their briefcases and everything and then they like you know start shooting each other like there's this murder going on and one of the guys who is part of this is joe spinell so i'm like fucking joe spinell yep this was shot in new york in the 70s he's here he's doing his thing he's being a criminal and he shows up a couple times in this just to be like tracked down and chased a couple times but he doesn't have a big giant role in this but when i saw him i was like yeah joe spinell like every time you see this guy you're just like there he is um and this kid witnesses this murder and runs off to the police and you know and and this leads to the kind of the cops 
having this it's it's kind of like this strike force they bring together you know it, it gathers together a detective a new york city detective called gentry played by cliff gorman who was part of the reason i kind of watched this because i i had just seen him in angel and thought he was really good in angel it's like the cop who tries to like help angel get off the streets but he was also in boys in the band which you have talked about in the past that you enjoyed so you know he he's a pretty cool kind of 70s kind of actor too um we have an fbi agent ripley played by don blakely and we've got a state trooper spencer played by richard gear and they're kind of all brought together to be part of this unified strike force which is gathered together to fight crime mostly narcotics crime and i think that was the crux of this show it was like the strike force will fight their drug dealers every week and the crack get their man it's kind of like was that kind of a deal because like even the state trooper the gear character is like shows up in his luck and like his his jacket with the you know the fur line jacket with the like cowboy type state trooper hat and they kind of make fun of him for his outfit you know it's that, that kind of a setup here and then they're all partnered up and they investigate the opening murders and this kind of leads to a whole bunch of really dry police procedural stuff as they're poking around new york city and going to the neighborhoods and talking to the people and trying to figure out what the main plot of this is and like why this murder happened and you know and and we've just got like a lot of people putting on really poor italian accents and being over exuberant when the cops come to see him and these accents are like that typical like super mario brothers side of italian accent like i don't know what's happening you know that, right. that like really over the top like fake italian accents um you know and you know for a while there they just focus on gentry the gorman character getting a lot of solo time and just going around and being like i remember you as a kid i will help you out kind of thing and and he's pretty charismatic in what he, while he's doing this and he's kind of like kind of like just joking around with the locals and stuff and i'm like yeah that stuff's okay even though it's kind of in the middle uh not like overly exciting then we've got this really dumb stakeout scene at this cabin in the woods where they're all like in the trees kind of like spying through the windows at them through spy glasses and going and knocking on the door and saying hello department of water we're here to check out your water it's like you're in the middle of the fucking woods the department of water's not gonna go out there you know and then there's a then there's a fish market sting that goes down and it all just feels completely empty and it feels like what it is it feels like a failed pilot attempt because by the end of this you know it's trying to be this tough cop film that's supposed to be like takeoff of like the French connection, but it's totally hampered by its TV format and the script is kind of blah. And it just, you know, eventually we find out that the whole thing, the whole plot is because someone's been stealing stuff out of the evidence room at the police station. And it just kind of leads to this ending. That's not really an ending because obviously mm -hmm. they wanted to continue this on as a series and it didn't happen. Like nothing is really, you know, fixed by the end. Like, yeah, some of the bad guys get their comeuppance, but there's really nothing. Like there's no real closure to this thing. Um, but, you know, Spinell does get to do a foot chase through a subway. That's pretty good. He gets chased through a subway on foot. That's a pretty good scene. Um, and, you know, and we've got Gorman 
kind of doing his thing and we've got gear kind of just looking like oh shucks look at me i'm a good looking guy that's uh, my first movie where am i i'm on tv hey mom he's kind of like that right and uh and then you've got blakely who's the african-american guy of the cast kind of being like sort of wooden and he see but only seems to be here to make those it's because i'm black isn't it comments mm. you know, to give it this kind of racial bent to it but uh it's not great it's I was curious. It's a curiosity to see gear and to see Gorman in this kind of thing. And it's a curiosity to me too, because it was directed by Barry Shear and Barry Shear is a guy. Both of us have talked about on the show. Cause we watched the Todd killings, which he did, which we both really liked. He also did wild in the streets, which I know you enjoy. I love. Yeah. And then he did a whole bunch of TV work. And this is just one of his four hire kind of TV work. So it, he doesn't really give it any flair. He just kind of shoots it standard. And it is what it is. But he was also another reason I kind of checked this out because I really did enjoy the Todd killings when I watched it and was hoping something along those lines, but it didn't deliver. So, yeah, you know, it is what it is. It's a, a mid 70s TV movie that is 74 minutes long and doesn't deliver the goods. And that seems to be a trend that's happening with these a lot of these 70s TV movies. I'm so excited to watch them. And then 75 minutes pass and I'm just like, yeah, I didn't hate it. But yeah. I, didn't, I didn't really like it either. So that's kind of what Strike Force is. So that's Strike Force. Finally saw it after seeing it in so many public domain sets and DVDs yeah. over the years and VHS tapes. Finally saw it. Um, the next one that I picked up and only watched because it co-stars Burt Reynolds is a little movie from 2008 called Deal, directed by Gil Cates Jr. It's Deal? A- deal d-e-a-l okay and this is obviously was made at the height of poker's surge of popularity so you remember in like the late 2000s all of a sudden poker was like this big fucking deal like had tv shows and all this stuff and (laughs) poker stars was a thing and you know and you had like all the tournaments on and celebrities would show up and sometimes take part and you know and like jennifer tilly won the female championship one year and (laughs) that's the reason she's in this movie playing a female poker card shark and this movie also has lots of the pro players that playing themselves. And I'm suppose if you were into that shit at the time, you'd be like, ah, oh, that guy's rad. I'm just sitting there going, that guy's fucking stupid. He's wearing a hoodie. Like he's a Unabomber. What the fuck's that guy's deal? Oh, I hate you that. Know? Yeah. That, that kind of shit. So this is just a movie that was obviously made to cash in on poker's popularity. And I have a sneaky suspicion that poker stars may have partially funded this because they're mentioned so many fucking times in this movie so many times but i was like okay we got we got burt reynolds in this i'm like a later day bird is still better than later day steven seagal no matter what happens so i'll, I'll give it a go and plus burt's my top actor on letterbox might as well pad his numbers so chevy chase falls behind a bit more right so i'm like let's <laughs> let's let's do that so the credits come on i'm like okay credits are rolling i'm like burt reynolds yes i'm like vincent van Patten. okay i'm like Jennifer Tilly, okay, and Charles Durning. I'm like, hey, that's that's not a bad little cast for this low budget kind of poker movie. Whatever. Then it opens with these college guys playing poker and like talking shit to each other as the camera sickeningly swings around the table. And I fucking hate these shots because they're so overdone and they just make me ill. It's basically just a round poker table 
everyone talking shit and the camera's just going in a circle around them. Oh, yeah. And it really, I don't like those kind of shots. Very rarely do I like those shots. I just find them to be overdone and kind of like an attempt by the director to give his movie style right off the bat that generally doesn't work. So one of the guys playing is this guy, this guy called Alex played by Brett Harrison. And, you know, and he ends up in winning this online poker stars tournament on his computer so he can gain entry to this big poker stars tournament. And at the same time, we've got our ex poker champion, Tommy played by Burt Reynolds, bitterly watching these poker tournaments on television and being like, I could fucking take all these guys. But his wife's kind of like, you're not doing that anymore. You kind of ruined yourself the first time. I'll fucking divorce you if you go and do this kind of shit, right? But of course, this being what it is, we've got Alex going and losing his big entry into the tournament, getting a desk job with his dad at his dad's firm because his dad's like, you can't play poker. You got to grow up. And of course, crossing paths with Tommy at some low budget casino and they kind of hook up so Tommy can kind of be his mentor and train him how to become a true poker champion uh, leading to them kind of traveling across country to get into tournaments. Like they go to Vegas and go to win a tournament and they go to new Orleans to enter a tournament. And then it kind of leads to your expected. Oh, look out. Tommy's decided he's going to start playing again. And there's going to be a big showdown between mentor and his trainee at the end of the movie. I wonder what's going to happen. You know, it's just this formulaic kind of boring plot going on through this whole thing. And, you know, And dude, I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to get excited by watching people play fucking cards. No, (laughs) like, like, I'm just like, I am not excited. It's like, oh, oh, what's going to happen on the flop? I'm like, who fucking cares? I'm like, you're you're not even showing me anything. The only movie I think that had card playing in it that actually works okay is Rounders with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. I think that one stages the poker stuff okay it's not the greatest movie but at least the poker's hands are okay but i'm just like i don't care i i don't want to watch people playing cards it's not exciting to me no No. matter how many fucking bells and whistles you try and show throw in by having all these like quick camera cuts and everything i don't care no i'd be like me going over to someone's house and watching like a bunch of old people play bridge it's just not exciting it just no no it's like it's like watching golf or bowling or something yeah i i don't get it like darts like like why like i i really don't understand and it's really hard to get excited by these guys playing poker i'm like ooh, the stakes are like two million dollars and here's another thing it's like this alex kid never seems to get excited about the pots being this big amounts of money because he's from a rich family so i'm like if he was like a kid who was like you know, from the streets and he's going and like, Oh, the prize in this tournament's $300,000. Look at that. Maybe that would give your character, make your character more relatable. Yeah. But because he's already from a rich family. I'm like, I don't fucking care about this kid. Yeah. Oh, cool. You're good at poker online. Big fucking deal. Like, yeah, 
I mean, nowadays, I guess the equivalent of this would be a movie about some fucking guy who plays Call of Duty and is really good at Call of Duty. But then yeah. there's this this guy who played Call of Duty old school who knows how to train him, how to fucking win these Twitch tournaments or whatever the fuck <laughs> they do nowadays. You know, it'd be kind of like that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, lots of poker theme songs on the soundtrack, lots of really bland drama, fucking Shannon Elizabeth showing up just to be the love interest to Alex, even, even having a little scene where they play air hockey with each against each other and like laugh about playing air hockey with each other and stuff like that. And the whole thing's just kind of boring and dull and not exciting and, you know, and it's for it's formula and it's a cash in and it feels like it feels like it it feels like a cash in because there's so many mentions of of just you know playing against these pros and all this handheld looking footage that they kind of like oh we just we stormed this poker stars tournament and took our handheld camera with us you know just that kind of stuff going down the fact that that Charles Durning is in this for less than two minutes. Basically mm. he's playing like he's playing like Alex's grandfather or something along those lines, or one of Tommy's like cohorts. I don't even know because he was in it so little that I didn't really pay attention. And then you've got like Vincent Van Patten playing his fucking self as a commentator to the poker stars tournament. Oh my God. Really? And, I'm, and I'm just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, why is he here? Maybe he did it in real life. I didn't look into it, but I thought it was a really weird decision. And 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 then Jennifer Tilly just playing a, a like a mean female poker player. And I'm like, just so many wasted actors who I actually like doing nothing. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, it's got to say something when Reynolds is probably the best thing here because he's not He's he's not great, but he's not nearly as sad sack as he would be in these bad comedies he was making around that this time, like Cloud Nine, that volleyball comedy. Well, he I was, was gonna say at least time. he had the good sense to make a beach volleyball movie after. Well, this, but I know but around he, this time, but but he wasn't that good in that beach volleyball movie. Oh no, like, he was just collecting a paycheck. Yeah, exactly, and like that, not another, not another movie that he did with oh, Chevy God. Chase, which yeah. was a, like a fucking dumpster fire. Yeah, you know, at least here he seems to be like trying a little bit, whereas in those movies he was like paycheck, please. He's yeah. pulling. He pulled a Cameron Mitchell with those movies. Yeah, paycheck, <laughs> please. But at least in this, he's kind of like, you know, in it. He's kind of mildly invested in it. It felt yeah. like so. This is not great. Kind of boring. And, you know, Gil Cates Jr. went on to make another movie about a guy addicted to gambling. So I think he's got a theme going on. Right. But I ain't going to go and seek him out. I mean, this was like one that I bought at like a pawn shop for like a dollar fifty, just because yeah. Burt Reynolds was in it. So now I can at least on my letterbox be like, look, another Burt Reynolds movie I've watched. Ho ho. But it's one <laughs> of those ones that people are like, I think only like 400 people maximum have logged this on that on that site. So yeah, it's that? like way down on the list of his titles. Yeah, it's like way down near the bottom. But hey, I'll watch anything Burton. That's become quite apparent. And yeah. I watched Deal and, you know, I didn't hate it, but I also was just kind of like, this is kind of lame. So there you go. Two movies that I watched for reasons, casting reasons and stuff that both kind of were disappointments. That's uh, Strike Force and Deal as a as a non-double feature you should check out. 
<laughs> you shouldn't right. check out. You shouldn't check out. Is what I meant to say. I'll check out Strike Force because I got to get good old Joe up to the top of my letterbox list. Well, you'll check it out because for sure because it's in the back. Nice. There you go. All right. Well, it's almost Black Friday. Yep. So um, I decided to watch the Vinegar Syndrome title that has been sitting there with a slipcover version still well over a thousand and it's been just sitting there sale after sale after sale okay sitting there sitting there and i of course i had bought net so i'm like why is this movie just sitting there like why is this not selling out because you know vinegar syndrome titles tend to sell out but this one is like a few years old and it's still like got tons so i decided to check it out so this is called the 11th commandment from 1986 hmm. I have no by... idea what this is okay directed by Paul Letter or Leader I do know uh, that name though who did I just remember Mama yep. and also Ape which I hated I've seen um, I just remember Mama as well yeah which I've got that on VHS somewhere. I've never seen it, but yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I don't have high hopes. It's not great. It's not. Great. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this is, and this has got like a fucking priest on the cover. And I'm just like, <laughs> fuck me. Why am I an idiot to buy? Well, I better buy it slipcover and, you know, vinegar syndrome slipcovers are just not really worth anything. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> um, particularly this one because it seems like that slipcover is going to be in fucking stock forever. Whoa, 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 hang on, back up. You said their slipcovers aren't worth anything anymore. <laughs> no, it's it's. I think they're just saturating the market. I mm. I just feel like you're not going to be able to like. You used to be able to sell a slipcover and guarantee you'd, you'd make your money back if you didn't like the movie. I don't feel like it's like. That oh anymore. man, fuck that. That doesn't bode well for my pandemonium slipcover then. No, no. You had your chance, man, but I Fuck. think that ship has sailed. Um, okay, and now they're going to be starting to put out new slipcovers. So I think, I don't know that. Like, we'll see after the sale, but it sounds like they're putting out different slipcovers now for movies that already have had slipcovers. Yeah, they, they did that on the, they did that with uh, Nightmare Sisters last time, I think. No, it was just, that was a, that one never had a slipcover. Oh, okay, one. okay. So. But now it's like they're going to put out a new slipcover, even though the movie had already had one that sold out. Can, anyway. can I just say I fucking don't understand slipcovers? I really well, don't. They do a good job on their slipcovers, vinegar syndrome. They do. But, they look really nice. But I just don't understand the collector mentality around slipcovers. I'm not buying a fucking movie for a slipcover. I'm buying a movie for the movie. That's well, totally, totally. Idea. But I, it will get me... <laughs> it will get me to buy it probably quicker mm. just because I'm going to buy it anyway. I might as well get it with the slipcover, right? But anyway, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay top dollar once it's sold out just to get the slipcover. Okay. Anyway. Um, and I was a subscriber, so it doesn't matter. Okay. So this is, um, so it's got the priest on the cover and I'm like, fuck me with the chainsaw. It's got a fucking priest on the cover, <laughs> but whatever. Um, I decided to go with it. Fuck me gently. Out. It's fuck me gently with a yeah. Rock, fuck Josh. me gently. If you're gonna quote Heather's, at least get it right. Shit. Okay, so we have this guy who thinks he's a priest. Actually, oh, this actually has a Heather's connection. Isn't that funny? Oh. Um, 
Okay, so this guy who thinks he's a priest, he's in a psychiatric ward, even fucking better, mm-hmm. named Robert, uh, played by Bernard White. And he's in a psych ward, and it turns out his evil uncle had put him in the psych ward, and uh, kind of, um, then that, then that's why he's there. Anyway, Robert um, is kind of mistreated in the psych ward by this evil weightlifting nurse, and then uh, whoa, 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 weightlifting nurse, huh? <laughs> uh, well, she, yeah, there's a scene of her on the phone or something, and she's sitting there doing weights. I thought it was weird a weird choice you had my attention for a minute there <laughs> no she's not like a bodybuilder she, oh. she was just lifting weights that'd be fucking what? rad if it was like john michael thor and like drag playing the nurse <laughs> no one no no drag please okay. <laughs> so robert um if anyway he's supposed to be the character we're sympathizing with because he's you know in the psych ward that his evil uncle put him in anyway he busts out of the psych ward and he wants revenge on his uncle and his uncle's played by Dick Sargent, who um, most people, well, probably no one knows anymore, but I know him as he was the second Darren on Bewitched. So mm-hmm. when Darren, when they replaced Darren on that show, he was the second one. So I do remember Dick Sargent from when I was a kid watching Bewitched on uh, in on after in the afternoon. Okay, so um, and he's like this, like you know, evil businessman, blah blah blah. And he's got this wife um, um, played by Marilyn Hassett from a, another shitty movie called Massive Retaliation. And she's like kind of, uh, she's dressed in a negligee all the time. And she's fucking some guy on the side. So Dick Sargent's not really in a happy marriage or whatever. Um, but Bernard White is like hellbent on revenge. and But along the way, he like wants to see his cousin, this little girl named Deborah, played by Lauren Woodland, uh, who was on the Alien Nation TV series. And one of those ones where you start see this cute girl and the cute little girl in this movie, and then you like look her up on IMDB and she's like fucking hella hot now. And it's really awkward. Anyway, so <laughs> he then spends a bunch of time hanging out with Deborah. They go to the beach and he kind of kidnaps her, but kind of she she trusts him and likes him and and, uh, you know, he says that he got her, got permission and they spend the day together. They go to the beach. Then he takes her down to like Skid Row in L.A. where they can go to a soup kitchen and she can serve soup to the homeless people, which in another really weird scene. And um, they do a few other things. And then they eventually go back to the house where Dick Sargent lives and they play in the basement. And they're playing like some sort of like acting game or something. And then um, Bernard White goes to get his revenge. Um, we've also got some other actors showing up. We've got Greg Mullavy, who is uh, the the uh, Mary Hartman's husband. I'm Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Uh, this guy named Thomas Ryan playing a cop. And um, yeah, it's just a lot of like, um, it's, it's just a lot of, of scenes of Robert and the little girl and I actually quite like those scenes, to be honest with you. The problem is, is that like whenever Roberts, um, whenever someone's kind of on to him or like um, is kind of in the way, he just fucking stabs them in the stomach and kills them. And he stabs everyone in the stomach. Just that's his thing, stomach stab. And uh, it, it didn't. I was kind of losing like like sympathy for this guy because I'm supposed to like this guy. 
but he's like just stabbing random people. <laughs> like, like there's a scene where they go to a hotel and he's got the him he, he's hanging out with the little girl in the hotel, and this woman in the other room like starts coming on to him. And uh, like wants to fuck him basically, and she's played by Jennifer Rhodes, who was Veronica's mom in Heather's. Mm. Um, and he fucking stabs her, and I'm just like, well, why did he stab her? She didn't do anything. She was just trying to fuck him, but he stabbed her. And then like another scene where he, when he's at Dick Sargent's house, he fucking stabs the butler, and he's like, oops, what were you doing here? I didn't mean to stab you, but he stabbed him in the stomach, and the butler <laughs> butler falls to to falls dead. He stabs the chauffeur in the stomach, kills him, stabs someone in the hospital. Like every fucking stomach stabbing. Like, I don't know. I don't know what was going on with all this, but like it was all these stabbings. And I'm just like, this guy's like, I like him, but why is he killing all these people for no reason? So that was the problem with that. Um, Yeah. And then overall, I mean, yeah, it's kind of trying to be a thriller it's it's trying a, a little bit to be a slasher, but not really because you. It's not like and not, not like he's going around stalking people and, and and offing them. He's he's just trying to get revenge and just sort of stabbing people in the process. But it's it wasn't as bad as I thought. I mean, I, I was I just I was watching it going of all the fucking shit vinegar syndromes put out. I'm kind of surprised that this one is the one that's like the most probably the worst seller in their history, at least judging by like how quickly it's going. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was okay. So if you're a completist and you've been kind of holding off on this, this one's okay. It's it's not great, but it's okay. And I, um, I did like Robert's performance and I did, I liked that little girl quite a bit. I thought she actually was a really good child actor and I don't really like child actress that much. So she was kind of good, but, yeah, overall, if you're curious, um, I'd say it's worth a look. Pick it up while it's the, while that slipcover is still available at the Black Friday sale, but uh, it's not going to change your life, that's for sure. So that's uh, the 11th Commandment. If you've <laughs> ever been wondering what, what that movie is, that's what <laughs> help, it is. <laughs> help the move units. They need it. Okay, so it's time to talk about Monica Valore. In fact, we're going to talk about Meet Monica Valore from 2010 which is a uh, quirky kind of comedy put out by Anchor Bay, which opens up with a pretty fun credit sequence where it's mock triple X posters starring a adult film actress called Monica Valor. And then we're introduced to this kid called Toby played by Dustin Ingram. Who's this nerdy teenager who kind of works for his grandfather, his bitter grandfather, played by Brian Dennehy. He owns, they own a hot dog truck and he kind of sells the hot dogs. And he's the one who's obsessed with this, with the porn actress of the title, this Monica Valore. And, you know, he, he's like, got a, like a scrapbook about her and he's got posters of her on his wall. And he's like hunting down all of her rare kind of VHS tapes of her movies. And he gets one in the mail, which is like this star Wars parody, which they show scenes of in the movie. And it's kind of funny. Cause it's like, instead of the stormtroopers, they're big, like penises that shoot laser guns at her and stuff like that. It's, it's kind of amusing. It's kind of like on the level of maybe flesh Gordon for that kind of stuff. And then he finds out that Monica Vlor, who he hasn't been able to track down is making her first appearance forever at a strip club, a couple States over. So he decides he's going to head off to see this former triple X actress that he had a crush on to see her 
as well as try and sell the hot dog truck to a guy who is interested who's around that area as well because he's graduated from high school and he's like i don't have anything to do let's go look for monica velour and monica velour in this movie is played by kim cattrall from porky sex in the city among other things um so you know he heads down on this mini road trip to see her shows up at this really grungy script strip club meets this girl call who calls herself snickers played by elizabeth shapiro who is like i need 40 bucks 40 bucks drink minimum like sits at the table with him like munching on popcorn while he's waiting for monica to come on stage and being like you want to go have a private dance 400 bucks and she's like he's like no i don't want a private dance he's like oh okay 200 bucks as we go in the in the back lounge he's like I didn't see a background. They're so like, well, you know, the back lounge, the the roof collapsed. So the back lounge now is the back seat of my car. So she's like, hundred bucks, kind of again. He's like, I'm just here for Monica. Leave me alone. And actually, Shapiro steals her scenes in this movie. Like she's just a lot of fun to watch because she's got the cornrows and she's just super white trash. I thought she was a lot of fun in her like couple minutes of screen time. Then Monica comes on stage to do a strip. And her first appearance is kind of embarrassing because she comes out, she's doing the routine to tonight. I celebrate my love for you. That cheesy ballad from the eighties. And he's entranced. And these jock guys are like, Oh, what's grandma doing on stage? You know? And he's like, fuck you. She's Marco Flores. She's a goddess. And he gets the shit beat out of him and ends up, you know, going back with Monica to her trailer. And from there we find out that Monica's broke and she still does drugs a little bit. She's stealing money from his wallet. And then they kind of have this friendship between a teenager and this washed up porn actress. And it becomes this whole coming of age kind of deal with a little bit of Keith David on the side as he shows up as this pop culture artist who lives on a farm, who wants to buy the, uh, the hot dog truck from, from Toby and, you know, and is his usual likable self. Like Keith David, this guy's likable in pretty much everything he's in. You know, like everything. Even when he's being an asshole like in the thing. He's still yeah. he's still likable. You can't deny that. So he's on hand. So I was like, oh yeah, Keith David, motherfucker. Keith motherfucking David is what I actually said to myself, because that's how you have to pronounce his name when he's in a movie. And then it just becomes, you know, this whole Toby and Monica learning from each other and Toby trying to help her out because, you know, she's divorced and she's not seeing her daughter and so on and so forth, that kind of deal. One of those kind of tragic kind of things. And I was really enjoying it up to a certain point. Like I, they were a good pair. A fucking Cottrell is really good in this all the way through. Like it's, it was really weird seeing her in a movie where she's like, you know, purposely made to look kind of like, run down like naturalistic no no makeup no glamour you know just kind of this whole i'm what have i done with my life i was in a bunch of porn movies and now look at me kind of deal and mm-hmm. she's she's actually really good in this she's very feels very natural and really fits into this movie and when i've looked at reviews for this movie that's what most of the positive things are is saying kim cattrall is really good in this movie and i actually thought D- dustin ingram as as Toby has just the right amount of slack jawed kind of nerdiness to him too. Cause like when he first sees Monica on stage, first time he sees her in person, he's just sitting there with his mouth kind of hanging open. Like, Oh my God, I can't believe she's here kind of deal. Um, yeah. So I was really liking them 
playing off each other. They were a good pair. And then it gets to a point in the movie where we have the expected, oh, here we go. Monica's going to take his virginity kind of thing, right? Mm. And that feels completely forced, like completely forced. It doesn't belong here. And it's from there that all the charm and goodwill I had towards this kind of goes down a little bit because it becomes more about Toby being like, have this having this love sickness towards Monica, who's like 32 years older than him. And it just becomes too goofy and too unrealistic for my liking. Where if it would have just stuck with these two people who being like friendly with each other and not bringing the whole sex part of it into the movie, I would have been a lot more happy with where the story went. But, but that being said, I thought this was actually a pretty decent little drama comedy with Cottrell giving it her all and, and Keith David being a likable kind of guy. And uh, this was kind of like a surprise for me. I paid like a buck 50 for it because it had like Kim Cottrell on the cover, pulling a stocking off her leg and saying she was a former porn star. I'm like, yeah, I'll watch that. Yeah. I'll watch that in a second. And it was, it, it, it was pretty good. Even Brian Dennehy in his little role as a churlish kind of assholey kind of grandfather was actually kind of fun to watch. So, uh, I'd recommend it as just like, if you like this kind of thing, like as one of these low budget indie type comedies with a little bit of Kung of age elements and a little bit of R rated comedy, you could do a lot worse than this. I didn't quite did like- you play. Did you just say Brian's Denny? He played a surly asshole. Yeah, I know. Surprise, oh, right? Weird. <laughs> Big surprise. He's pretty good at it too. <laughs> but you know, I there the he's pretty he's pretty good doing what he does. He's just like that grandpa that kind of has to look after his grandson because his parents are gone and doesn't like the fact that he has to look after his grandson right. kind of deal. And he's like kind of he's just that typical granddad in these kind of movies where he's just like a dick, but kind of a likable dick. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like that. So meet Monica Velour is not gonna like change lives. But for like a 2010 coming of age kind of comedy with R-rated elements, I had a pretty good time. I got to admit. I got to admit. It was one of these same, bought it around the same time that I bought uh, some of the other movies I talked about this episode, like for a buck 50 at a, at a pawn shop. I was like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And it was pretty good. Pretty good. So that's the first of the two I'm going to talk about. These two are not related at all because the second one, Josh, is inspired by your viewing of Space Camp recently. And it's, okay. a, and, it's, and it's a movie that came up when we were talking about Space Camp. It's a movie called D-A-R-Y-L, huh. a.k.a. Daryl from, uh, from 1985. And it was part of that mid-80s sci-fi trend that was kind of aimed at kids, which included Space Camp, you know, uh, Last Starfighter, Explorers, Flight of the Navigator, all those kind of movies. And uh, this is directed by Simon Winsor, who's an Australian director who actually, surprisingly, I was surprised he made this because I forgot. Because this is a guy who made like Harley Davidson and Marlboro Man, which is a movie I think gets shit on a bit too much because I actually kind of like that movie. I think it's a lot of fun. He also did a movie called Harlequin, which is kind of like this supernatural magician type horror movie also known as Dark Forces. That's actually a pretty decent little early 80s horror movie. And he did those two Tom Selleck westerns that you talked about on the show that you enjoyed. Oh, yeah. 
Crossfire Trail and uh, Monty Walsh that you enjoyed. Yeah. He directed I mean, I both, he directed both of those too. So uh, this guy knows what he's doing. Yeah, you know, and 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 you can tell in this that he knows what he's doing, even though this is kind of a standard, you know, aimed at twelve year olds kind of movie. Because you know, it opens with this chase scene through the mountains where this helicopter is chasing this car, and inside the car we have this like scientist guy driving, and we've got this kid inside, and the kid's played by Barrett Oliver from the Never Ending Story, and he's kind of like desperately to get away, and eventually. You know, they're trying to like not drive off the side of the mountain. The tires of the car is coming close to the edge of the mountain. And he eventually just stops and says, get out, get out, run away. And, and, uh, you know, Daryl Barrett Oliver's character runs off into the woods. And then, you know, the scientist gets captured kind of thing. So while Daryl's out in the woods, he's soon rescued by this older couple who's camping. He's sent off to an orphanage. And while he's in the orphanage, we have some foster parent, wannabe foster parents showing up. And we've got Joyce played by Mary Beth Hurt and her husband, Andy, played by Michael McKean. And, you know, automatically they they kind of get a little bit, they get a little bit, you know, into Daryl because he just seems a little bit off. He's just very precocious and smart and seems to be like really acts a little bit older than his age. But they're like, we'll give him a chance. We'll, we'll bring him home. And, you know, and we know something's up with Daryl because he's befriended by this plucky neighborhood kid, Turtle played by Danny Corkle, who takes him over to his house. And when he goes over to his house, they're playing pole position on his computer. And Daryl just watches them play at once. And all of a sudden he's getting the fucking high score and everyone's watching like in amazement. Cause we know we learn, we know this, but no one else kind of knows it, that Daryl is a robot kid. Who's yeah. just being made by this lab to become this perfect kind of child thing. And, you know, and, from there it just becomes this lightweight fun kind of tone early on you know where you know andy mckean's character is teaching daryl how to play baseball and you know and then turtle's mom shows up played by colleen camp and they talk about like how daryl's a really good kid and turtle's a little bit of an asshole which we know turtle's a little bit of an asshole because he calls his sister a hooker all the time and i'm like yep mid 80s because he's always like you're a hooker my sister's a hooker. She's always bringing guys home. And, and, you know, I watched him in the driveway and she's always making out with everybody, you know? And Daryl's like, what's a hooker? And I was like, Oh, I thought that was kind of a funny scene. And, you know, and it's just this lightweight kind of fun kind of robot kid kind of movie. Right. And yeah, it does feel like a sappy family comedy drama at times, but then Daryl's real parents, which I'm using in quotes show up about 40 minutes in and it turns out they're just scientists from the lab that Daryl was, 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 you know, taken away from. And from there we learned that Daryl stands for data analyzing robot youth life form. What a fucking mouthful that is. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and I actually started to lose a little bit of interest in the movie because Daryl's taken back to the lab and they're like, what have you learned when you were out in the wilderness, you know? And, and then, you know, He's like, well, I learned about American families and how they operate and everything. And then the parents, the foster parents get to come and visit him in the lab and they find out Daryl's a robot. They're shocked and Turtle gets to come and see his friend, robot Daryl. And he sees, steals every fucking scene he's in because he's super sarcastic and everything. And then it just leads to, you know, Daryl again escaping and being chased, leading to a finale where Daryl fucking steals a friggin' jet plane. 
and learns to fly it instantaneously. Oh, wow. So okay. Kind of goes that part. Kind of like goes fucking top gun on it. And there's a scene before that where there's this car pursuit going on and Daryl takes the wheel of the car and fucking goes up on two wheels and fucking drives down the middle of the freeway fucking two wheeling it like he's a fucking boss <laughs> down the middle of the freeway while other cars are fucking like slamming into each other and flying through the air i'm like yep this is how simon winter earned his paycheck is staging these kind of yeah. ridiculous action scenes but uh actually kind of like this it was okay it's like a solid three out of five kind of sci-fi mid-80s movie i bought the fucking Re- the region two blu-ray of this for like 10 bucks and i'll probably probably hold on to it because you know michael mckean's a lot of fun as the dad i thought barrett oliver's okay as daryl like i don't i didn't really like him in never ending story that much to be honest and he wasn't in a lot of stuff and uh corkle as fucking turtle is great he's like i said he's stealing scenes he's super sarcastic he's kind of like another billy jacoby of this movie mm. You know, I love Billy Jacoby. He's a guy who played all the fucking sarcastic little brothers in movies like just one of the guys. And, you know, he was the lead in Dr. Alien and he was one of the killer kids in Bloody Birthday. I I like him. He was he was a lot of fun to watch back in the 80s. And that's kind of what Corkle is in this is that kind of thing. And we also have Joseph Sumner showing up as the main scientist. And this is a guy who was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Witness. So he's a very familiar character actor showing up and he's pretty good too so like overall this is a pretty decent family themed sci-fi melodrama that you know it's not the greatest thing in the world but kind of like you with space camp i feel i wasn't annoyed Mm. i was watching it i was just like yeah this is okay like this is pretty fun at times and I don't regret spending the hundred minutes with this thing. Like I, I thought it was all right for what it was. And you know, he, Oliver, yeah, he's not that great, but he's surrounded by solid, solid adult actors like McKean, like I said, and, and I, I really like Colleen camp when she shows up in these things too. Cause she always kind of steals scenes in her, when she shows up too, is like turtles, turtles, equally sarcastic mom, you know? Yeah. So, so this was a pretty good little, little sci-fi 80s kids flick i mean pretty generic at times but fucking daryl flies a jet god damn it (laughs) not only does he fly a jet he fucking sets it up so the jet you know he tricks them while he's flying this jet and i'm like fucking he could go toe-to-toe with maverick and top gun fucking yeah let's do it (laughs) d-a-r-y-l versus fucking maverick man let's let's fucking (laughs) grudge match for the ages fucking forget fucking frank duke and and Chong Lee and fucking Bloodsport. Let's see this shit go down. Let's have wow, a fucking- there, there's this, there's the uh, team up before you know if, if there was a Marvel universe in the eighties, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah. D A R Y L and Maverick taking on <laughs> fucking whoever, and get Jason Gedrick from Iron Eagle in there too. Let's yeah, exactly. do this shit up. Let's do this up. But uh, yeah, pr- pretty okay mid eighties sci fi kids jam. D-A-R-Y-L. Nice. Okay. Well, maybe I'll revisit. I actually will revisit that one. That's sounds sounds safe. Yeah. Sometimes it, it's not safe. Yeah, it, it's pretty safe. I mean, just don't expect like this hidden gem that you didn't know existed. Just go into it knowing what it is and you'll be fine. Okay. 
All right, well let's um let's fucking go to the genre that I don't like that I seem to keep fucking watching movies from. <laughs> let's go with another religious horror movie. Fuck. <laughs> well, how did you do two in one uh, two religious themed fucking movies in the same episode? How did this happen? Uh, well, because the Black Friday sale was coming up and I I knew I wanted to try and feature something that you know, maybe hasn't been talked about that much uh for Vinegar Syndrome. And this one I was just trying to wrap up uh, a double feet or one of my uh screen factory box uh four packs okay so this is the uh the godsend from 1980 okay directed by gabrielle beaumont and i didn't write anything beside her name so i don't think she's done she, much she directed this movie called He's my girl in 1987, which is one of your favorite things at cross-dressing comedy. Yeah, exactly. So I didn't write anything. Yeah. Saturday, it's, so. it's pretty. It's pretty bad. Okay, so this one, um, yeah, this is kind of like this is on one of those horror four packs, and it was also paired with the lamp, um, the outing, yep. on a Screen Factory double feature. And uh, I just find this is the one that just no, no one seems to talk about. And it's also the only one on these horror all-nighters that hasn't come, hasn't seen a Blu-ray release. Yeah, I, ha- I have this DVD set you're talking about. Yeah. So I'm like, what's the problem? Why isn't there a Blu-ray release for this? And so I was expecting the worst, because I always am with religious horror. And I don't know why I keep watching it. It's just like fucking techno horror or another genre I hate that I keep watching movies from. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on the techno horror shit. Yeah, fucking stay alive and fucking raise their hell world and all that shit. I'm with you. So, so bad. Anyway, so I had low expectations going into this. Um, So it's it's a British movie um, and it's got okay, so it's got this family (laughs) oh fuck this is so ridiculous okay <laughs> so it's got this yeah i'm gonna be a little hard on this movie sorry um okay so it's got this family um mom and dad played by malcolm stoddard and uh sid herman sid Heyman, sid being a woman and i've talked about sid Heyman recently she was in that dick transplant movie called percy oh yeah okay. um, and i really loved her in that so um, I actually really liked her in this as well. I think she's, um, I don't know why I, I get Kate Bush vibes from her. And I, you know, Kate Bush is my favorite singer. And I don't know why I get Kate Bush vibes from her. It's kind of like a Kate Bush meets Catherine Ross look. And I think Catherine mm-hmm. Ross is absolutely beautiful as well. So maybe that's what it is. But yeah, she definitely reminds me of a few people. And, um, and, kind of chill and, and I, I did like her quite a bit in this even though she's a complete fucking idiot um, <laughs> not her but the actor or the uh, character okay so they're like out and about playing in the fucking they have this small house and it's kind of like it looks like a fairy tale house like a like a gingerbread house or something like a hobbit house with that you know what I mean when you see it, like kind of like that. like the cobbled like roof. Yeah, yeah, it's, it looks like a <clears throat> looks like a a fairy tale house. Yeah, and okay. it's out in the middle of the of the woods or whatever in a small town. Anyway, they're they're playing, and then this woman shows up, uh, uh, played by Angela Pleasance, and uh, she's she's been in some stuff. Uh, 
probably most notably for, for genre fans, she was in uh, her, Jose Larez's uh, Symptoms. Symptoms. Um, so she shows up and she's pregnant and they invite her to like come in and hang out with them. So she's like sitting there at the table and like stuff's going on and uh, she's acting really weird. And I'm already starting to be like, why aren't you kicking this woman out of your house? But they just kind of <laughs> keep her. She's just sitting there being creepy and being weird. And at one point, uh, Sid Heyman's character runs, walks out of the room and this creepy woman like goes over and unplugs the phone and you're like, okay, so she's, she's bad or whatever. And anyway, she sits back down again and is just kind of looking around like a weirdo. And, um, and then she ends up fucking giving birth in the house. And I'm like, okay. So she gives birth and then she fucking leaves the baby there and fucks off. So they're left with this like newborn dripping thing in, in their house. And, uh, and Sid Heyman's character is like, Oh, we, we need to take care of this baby. So they decide that they're going to like raise this child as one of their own. And keep in mind, I, they have either four or five kids already. And I'm like, okay, what I, well, I guess you're in England in the, in the early eighties and, Maybe, oh no, he's a writer, so he can't be, can't be making that much money. Whatever, but uh, somehow they're able to raise all these kids and can take on another one. And eventually, the new child, uh, Bonnie, um, starts murdering the other kids. So she, you know, when she's very young, she murders the little baby. And she's just sitting there all cute and the, like, dead babies in the crib. And, uh, so that kid dies. Then another one of the kids dies. Then another one of the kids dies. And like, so I'm like, and they just keep carrying on like, like nothing's wrong. I'm like, lady, you've just lost like two or three fucking kids. And how are you even functioning anymore? And then one of the other remaining kids starts saying, it's this Bonnie, she's evil and she's like fucking with me and she's doing stuff. But they, of course, the idiot parents think that the, the kid that's like complaining is like jealous of Bonnie. So they defend this orphan child that they've decided to raise on their own as their kids are getting offed. And eventually that kid gets it as well. And then it just kind of keeps going on. And then Eventually, the dad kind of starts to figure out, oh, there's something wrong with this child, but the mom is all in. So there's like strife between these parents because this mom is like defending this orphan child and like will do anything to keep her happy. And, and no matter what happens to all our other kids. And, um, yeah. And that's, that's kind of what the movie is. And, I don't know, man. These are the world's worst fucking parents I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, I, I, I can't imagine losing one kid, but losing like three or four, like, must be completely devastating. But somehow these people are able to like function. And this, maybe this woman just keeps putting, is putting all her grief in this, in this evil child and not seeing it. But anyway, it didn't make any sense to me. I'm just like, no characters are this stupid. And, you know, it's always hard. It's always a hard sell when you're 
asked to believe people are this stupid. And uh, that's that was the problem with this movie. However, I'm not a big fan of evil kids movies. I was engaged throughout. I thought Creepy Little Bonnie, Wilhelmina Green did a really good job. Um, I, I was pretty interested in what was going to happen. So I actually kind of liked this. Um, I, I definitely like this more than some of the other stuff that's been in these sets, like The Dungeon Master and Cellar Dweller. Um, I actually thought this was pretty solid and a little different because I've been kind of dreading some of these because I I'm just haven't been a big fan of those Empire Pictures creature features. So that's what I was expecting. I was just expecting a shitty creature feature religious horror movie. But it, instead, it was actually a, kind of an evil kid movie that I thought somewhat worked if you could get past the the ineptitude of mom and dad here. So I, I kind of liked it. Um, would I buy it if it came out on blue? No. Um, but am I going to let go of my four pack that cost me $10? No, I'm going to keep it. And yeah, I'd probably re- revisit this one day. I, I like these British horror movies and, um, and I like this Sid Heyman character, uh, actress. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'd probably check this one out again. It was way better than I, I thought it would be, especially with the terrible cover and the terrible title. So, um, Take what take what you will from that, but that's the godsend. I think if you like evil kid movies, uh, this one might be one that you haven't uh, haven't seen yet. Yeah, I uh, all I know of this movie is that cover because I never yeah. I never watched this back in the day on uh, VHS or anything. I don't know why, but uh, I do have the set, so eventually I'll get to it. But you know, when I say eventually, that could be years down. <laughs> Yeah, but so evil kid movie, not religious horror, as is implied. Yeah, okay. Well, that's good to know because yeah, I, I have a much higher tolerance for evil kid movies than you do. Yes. And and I would prefer an evil kid movie over a religious movie any day of the week. So yeah, it's got that going for it. Um, but now it's time for a movie that has a triple. It's a triple header for me. These are three things that any movie should have that makes me want to watch it automatically. And those three things are skiing, a monster and Robert Logan. And I'm going to talk about 1977 snow beast directed by Herb Wallerstein uh, TV, t- TV movie. So, you know, put your, put your attitude in check when you think of this, but this thing opens with two girls skiing in the mountains and we get this POV something watching them and it attacks them and it's like and attacks them and I'm like oh shit the snow beast is already on the loose and from there we go to the real resort which is this ski resort it's right close by on the mountain and it's in the mountains of Colorado and there's this winter carnival upcoming this winter carnival competition coming up and I'm like oh fuck here we go this is like Jaws this is automatically like Jaws they're having this winter carnival everyone's going to start getting attacked and nobody will want to shut it down I'm like yeah of course I'm, I'm expecting this but then Tony shows up and Tony is who Josh Robert fucking Logan is who <laughs> Tony is and Tony 
is a fucking stud, of course, because it's Robert Logan. So, you know, he's a stud and he's running this resort with his grandmother and his grandmother's kind of this bitter bitch who just likes saying like this winter carnival is going to be a success. But one of the girls who was attacked in the opening scene has survived and shows up at the at the resort is like warns them like something's out in the in the woods and, you know, and my friend's missing and we got attacked and you guys got to watch out. So, you know, Tony's like. Well, I, I don't know about that, but, you know, I'll, I'll go look into it for you. I'll, I'll see what's going on. So he's just kind of like he tells his grandma and his grandma's like, no, nope, we're not shutting down. Too bad. It's not going to happen. So he's like, fuck, what am I going to do about this? So into the picture comes Bo Svensson <laughs> playing Gar, who is this former Gar. His name is Gar. I instantly I was like, "What is this fucking Beastmaster?" But I think his name in Beastmaster was Dar. So it was Dar. Yeah, I was like, "Gar, what kind of fucking name is that?" But he shows up, and he's a former Olympic skiing champion who happens to be friends with Tony, and he's going through marital problems. His wife is y- Yvette Mimu, and they're going through these marriage problems because, like, you know she's kind of pissed off at him because he lost his job and he's just there. He's like, I wonder if Tony's going to give me a job. It would really help me out. We're, we're really, really, really having a hard time right now. Um, you know, and then, you know, there's a whole bunch of skiing that goes on to pad this fucker out. It's 85 minutes long, but there's so much skiing going on. And here's the thing. I'm okay with padding when it's skiing. If it's like fucking cool skiing, like it's, you know, skiing down a mountain really fast and doing like fucking slaloms, doing ski jumps, jumping off ledges and fucking all that shit. This is just, we're cross country skiing really slowly. You know, we're, we're we're kind of like we're on beginner slopes because our skis are like kind of in a, in a V shape. So we don't go too fast down the ski hill, you know, that kind of skiing's going on in this and uh, it's super padding, but along the way, you know, we've got like, you know, people occasionally getting attacked. Like we have this ski patrol guy, dude, who he's going looking for this missing girl and he gets a fucking claw in the head. And I'm like, oh, fuck, yeah, the snow beast is doing it again. And he's swiping at the guy's head. And every time there's a commercial break in this fucking movie, which is obvious, the screen fades to like bright red, which is yeah. I'm assuming supposed to be like blood or something. Right. It's just like, Brow. and I'm like, well, ad break, ad break. Um, so while that's going on, like occasionally someone's attacked by the snow beast, we've got fucking Tony, a.k.a. Stud Logan, fucking macking on Gar's wife all the time. He's literally like macking. I was like, hey. How's it going? You want to like come hang out with me? And Gar's just like, oh, look at those two having a good old time over there, right? And like, and of course he's gonna mac on fucking Gar's wife because he's Robert fucking Logan. Like, this <laughs> is just something that happens. Like, fucking, it's just gonna happen. It just is. The guy's a fucking lady killer. He just fucking shows up, and all the ladies are like, oh fuck, we're done. Like, we're <laughs> we're totally done. So, and then we get a scene of of Bo Swenson and Robert Logan going off and you know, going to hunt the Yeti together, like the snow beast together after they've had an argument in the, in the pool. So there's this pool outside of the resort and they're having an argument in it. And fucking Robert Logan's there and he's rocking a fucking robe. And I'm like, what a fucking stud. Right. And, but they're fighting with each other. And he's like, you got to come with me and help me fight, find the snow beast. Cause we can't shut down the resort because fucking winter carnival. Like I'd be stupid of us. So, they go out to hunt the snow beast. Clint Walker from Killdozer shows up as the fucking sheriff who's just there to be like, <laughs> gotta shut down the resort. You know, that kind of stuff. Like, it's totally fucking Jaws. 
Yeah. Totally Jaws. And, you know, and everyone kind of sucks at skiing in this movie, giving the snow beast plentiful opportunity to attack them. Like everybody sucks at skiing. Even fucking Gar, the Olympic champion, sucks at skiing. <laughs> like they all suck. Um, and then, you know, I'm just like kind of a little bit bored by the soap opera goings on and, you know, but you've got fucking Bo Swenson and Robert Logan here. So you're like, I'm okay with this kind of soap opera stuff for the most part, just because of those two guys being here. Right. And then we get this really fucking scene of the fucking snow bees showing up at the school gym and causing mayhem and like fucking peeking in the windows and like busting, busting through car windows and dragging people out. I'm like, yeah, shit. Yeah. This is the kind of shit I want from the snow bees. And we get, glimpses of the snow beast and it's this ridiculous fucking halloween mask looking thing but i'm just like i'm having fun because the snow beast is at least causing some mayhem going on right uh and then it just becomes this pretty standard bland movie of the week kind of thing getting by on its cast and goofy monster scenes and lots of waiting around when they all decide like like gar and toady and gar's wife all decide to go off to look for the monster again the snow beast again and they just fucking just wait around they literally just super slow skiing <laughs> look for the snow beast and then they're hanging out by their rv wait for the snow beast and like where's the snow beast and as an audience member, you're like yeah where's the fucking snow beast like i'm getting kind of bored here then the snow beast shows up to kick fucking logs down the hill into the rv and you're like okay there's the snow beast and then it just and then it just ends on like this big showdown and unfortunately much to my much to my disappointment Robert Logan is not the main hero in this but he is third build so I shouldn't have expected that but he's still Robert Logan and the reason I watched this fucking thing and he's still fucking amazing and that you know Snow Beast isn't but Robert Logan is and it's always fun to see Bo Swenson so it's not great but I think it's on fucking Tubi so if you're it is on TV, yeah. if you're obsessed with Robert Logan, like I'm obsessed with Robert Logan, and I know there's at least one of you out there, watch <laughs> Snow Beast. Um, but you know, if you want to see a shoddy, kind of abominable snowman movie that was made for TV, give it a go. It's not great. It's got moments, but it, yeah, it is what it is. I mean, Yvette Mimio was in the the black hole, which is one of Josh's childhood favorites, and she was also in Jackson County Jail with like. Tommy Joe, Tommy, Tommy Lee Jones. I Tommy think Lee Jones. Yeah. And uh, Bo Swenson was in the Walking Tall sequels and Inglorious Bastards, the original Inglorious Bastards. So he's got some cred. And Clint Walker, like I said, was in Killdozer and the Dirty Dozen. So you've got all these like well known actors just going through the motions. And you've got fucking Robert Logan being a stud. So you don't really need much more than that. It's not great. But hey, I watched it. It's on Tubi. Check it out. Print's probably shit because the DVD I watched of it was shit. So I'm assuming that the, the 2B print will be bad too. But, you know, it's not the best Abominable Snowman out there, movie out there, but it's definitely not the worst. It's definitely not the worst. I think that uh, Shriek of the Mutilated is worse than this one for Abominable Snowman kind of stuff. So, yeah, there you go. Snow Beast. All right. Triumphant return of Robert fucking Logan to the show. But I. <laughs> But unfortunately, I am running out of movies he was in. So I don't know. I mean, even my girlfriend's obsessed with Robert Logan because she's just like, how did this guy not become a star? I'm like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> one of kind of was, briefly. One of life's great mysteries is how this guy didn't 
do more than like fucking 10 movies in his career. Yeah. So it is what it is, but there you go. Snow beast. Okay. Um, <laughs> I always love it when, cause people can't see the video of this. I always love it when you're about to talk about something, you get this fucking smirk on your face. It just, <laughs> yeah, it, I'm actually, yeah, I'm going to save that one for a minute. I'll do it, this other one. It, it cracks me up when the smirk <laughs> happens. All right. Let's talk about it. I'm going to, this one will be fairly brief. I think um, I'm going to talk about a, a Severin title. Um, and this is the second movie. Um, I'm, I'm trying actually kind of going in order. <laughs> Uh, from Eloy de la Iglesia. And uh, I talked about Cannibal Man a few episodes ago. Uh, so this is his follow-up to Cannibal Man. It's called No One Heard the Scream from 1973. And uh, yeah, I, I went into this blind. I know de la Iglesia has these like kind of like drug movies called the Kinky, Kinky Collection. And uh, I'm looking forward to watching those, but this is not one of them. This is um, got some Jallo elements, uh, Spanish Jallo, but uh, I wouldn't call it one of those. Um, it's it's just um, it's almost kind of got a kind of a Hitchcock vibe going on in a way. Um, so the plot is uh, we've got this woman named Eliza played by Carmen Sevilla and she is a high class prostitute uh, she was in uh, King of Kings and a bunch of uh, Spanish movies so she's this prostitute um, she decides uh, she's supposed to be going back I think she's supposed to be going back to London but she decides to stay in, in the city where she's uh been with a client and she there's some talking with the client anyway she decides she's not gonna go on this trip and she's gonna stick around so she's um at this apartment and um one day she like oh i think she opens the door i can't remember how it played out but she somehow like goes out into the hallway to find her neighbor standing over a body that he's about to throw into the elevator shaft. And the neighbor is played by Vicente Parra, sorry, um, who was the cannibal man in the cannibal man. And uh, he's um, dumping this body. And then this movie fucking escalates very quickly. And she like kind of locks herself back in her apartment and she's freaked out. And he's like knocking at the door, trying to get in. And she's like fucking bolting the door and closing the windows. And he's like kind of going around her apartment, trying to get into her apartment. Very good scene. And eventually he's like tapping on the glass with a gun and is basically like pointing it at her. And uh, she ends up letting him in. And then he says, he basically decides it would be more beneficial for me to keep you alive and make you my accomplice than to kill you. So that's <clears throat> that's what he does. So he basically forces this woman to help him get the body out of the elevator shaft, out of the apartment building, and into, into her car so they can, like, find somewhere to put it. And then, of course, this does, this leads into more, like, tense scenes. Uh, there's a scene where they're, like, in the in the basement of the building trying to, like, 
get the body out and, you know, someone's coming downstairs and they got to like deal with that. So all these kind of cool set piece scenes are going on. Then they hit the road. Um, there's a great scene at a roadblock where they have to like, again, try and deal with this corpse that's in the trunk without being caught. And then there's a car accident and they have to like transport victims from the car accident, all the while having this corpse in the car and making up excuses and all the stuff's going on. And it's, it's actually really a pretty great movie um, as all this is happening. And then eventually they get to a destination where they're going to deal with the body and they, and again, that leads to more intense sequences and, yeah, I was fucking loving this for like probably over half of it. And then uh, once the body's been dispatched, then it kind of shifts. And again, kind of like the godsend, we've got like really stupid character choices happening. Um, and, there, and basically there's a scene where she can kind of get out of the situation, but instead she doesn't and then ends up it ends up turning into kind of a romance. And that's where I'm kind of like, really? Come on now. <laughs> like, why, why would she do this? And, and yeah, so I just, it just went from this, like, I just wish they had just done what they were doing in the first hour and just did that the whole movie. Like, it would have been so good if this was just 90 minutes of them, him kind of holding her, against her will to a degree to to deal with this corpse uh that would have been all i needed but instead they it shifted and and it kind of became something i maybe didn't quite so much need and then it um it leads to an ending that i was kind of rolling my eyes a little bit so um but so overall i mean i i think um this is available from severin i think if you like Spanish thrillers or this kind of movie and everyone knows I do um, I thought this was really quite good um, you can get it in their Black Friday sale um, and again really showing that this director um, certainly has something going on and and I'm surprised he's been a cult director for so long and only now is he starting to get recognition uh, with um Severin and um one of the partner late uh, one of the partner labels of vinegar syndromes put out one of his movies um there's also one of his movies came out from um who put out uh who put out Fulci's uh contraband or uh, the cauldron cauldron yeah they put out one of his movies so these these all these lay all the labels are starting to pick up movies from this director and i'm totally i totally get it like so i'm definitely looking forward to seeing more of them but just both of these so far like i've really quite liked both of them but there's been just a little bit missing so i'm hoping that as i go on i'm gonna find that perfect movie because i know i know that the talents are but they they just there's been a little bit something off on both of both of these, but they're both very enjoyable. So if you like Spanish horror stuff and are curious about this director, this is certainly a welcome addition to uh, to check out. And uh, uh, surprisingly, no nudity. Um, I thought these would be a little bit, especially with this guy's 
um, because I know the kind of movies he he got into making. I thought they'd be be a little uh, a little sleazier, a little more Franco-y, but they're they're not so far. They're they've both been fairly tame in that department, but uh, both really well done. So that's no one heard the scream from nineteen seventy three. Nice. And while you're picking that up in the Severance sale, you can. You can help Josh fuel his religion-themed horror and pick up Day of Judgment while you're at it, too. What's Day of Judgment? It's about a fucking... Uh, it's a slasher movie with a murderous priest. Oh, is that from Severin? Yeah, it's from Severin. Okay, I wonder if I got that at their DVD sale for like two bucks. Maybe you did, because I think it was included. Nice. So another religious horror for you to look forward to. But... Uh, <laughs> I love I love The Exorcist, though. That's what's so weird. Yeah, like The Exorcist is like one of my top horror movies ever, right? So, well, like that was one of the things. Remember when I talked about Jaws of Satan? Yeah, that was like one of the things that kind of put me off it a little bit was that it had that whole religious angle and the priest and everything, and I just wanted a killer snake movie. All right, so you know it is what it is. But uh, speaking of of Gallo and Hitchcock. I'm going to talk about Dress to Kill from 1980, directed by Brian De Palma, because uh, Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery talked about it on their new podcast, The Video Archives. Uh, My girlfriend had never seen it, so she's like, I want to watch Dress to Kill. So I was like, I'll I'll revisit Dress to Kill. No problem. We'll do this. Um, Before I start talking about it, just be aware if you haven't seen it, there's might be some mild spoilery stuff here because you kind of can't talk about the movie without having at least one minor spoiler in it because you can't describe the plot otherwise at all just because of the way the characters are so uh this one opens with what's now a pretty famous opening scene with uh angie dickinson's kate kind of like in the shower kind of like taking you know feeling herself up a little bit it's it's a body double but you know we don't care. So she's just kind of like it super graphic. Is it super graphic? Uh, that scene isn't particularly. No, it's just, I just like, remember like, yeah, I remember that she's just shocked. Yeah. It's just kind of like, Oh, well, I think it's shocking for the time because she starts kind of like masturbating in the shower. And it's yeah. like, you know, you just see her hands kind of creeping down her stomach and kind yeah. of go in there. And then she gets that orgasmic kind of look on her face. So it's kind of for 1980, it's kind of like a little bit sexual. Like there's a lot of sexualization in this movie that is pretty for the time frame it came out. It's pretty like graphic in a way, I guess, because they weren't doing this kind of stuff in like American mainstream kind of movies. But right. uh, but De Palma's like, I'm going to do it anyway. So she's doing that in the shower and then she gets assaulted and and wakes up and it's this this big dream where she's had this nightmare of being like kind of assaulted in the shower one day and um you know and then she kind of like kind of like shakes her head comes out says hello to her son peter played by keith gordon who's kind of like this nerdy kind of science fair kind of guy like he likes to invent stuff and do kind of things like that and then she kind of like says okay i gotta go to my appointment now i'm gonna go see my i'm gonna go to my appointment so she goes to see her psychiatrist and her psychiatrist is this guy dr elliot played by michael kane and while she's in her session with him, 
we kind of learn that she's just like, like not overly happy in her marriage. And she's kind of like upset at her husband. He doesn't really like want anything to do with her. He doesn't really want to touch her and stuff. And that's kind of why she's been having these kind of sexualized dreams and stuff, even though they, they probably turn into these nightmares because she's kind of like feels guilty of having these dreams about other men and stuff. And then she's, she's just like, I'm not really that, happy in all this and he's like well you got to just do what you can and and move on from this so she's like has her session and decides she's going to go and spend her afternoon in a nearby art gallery and uh while she's in this art gallery we get this really extended De Palma sets this really extended dialogue less scene of her kind of like pursuing this mysterious guy through the art gallery who she's like you know, she, she caught his eye and had eye contact with him and she, she kind of finds him attractive and he's kind of giving her this vibe and she kind of just pursues him through the art gallery, like kind of follows him. And they end up having this kind of like this fling in the back of this taxi. Like she basically has sex with this dude in the back of the taxi and she's just like riddled with this guilt. And, you know, and De Palma does a really good, way of staging this where it's like she's she's just you could tell she's guilt she feels this guilt and she goes home and she has this venereal disease test because she's so concerned about it and she realizes she fucking forgot her wedding ring at this dude's apartment and she's just like fuck what am i gonna do my wedding ring is there Mm. if my husband sees i'm not wearing my wedding ring he's gonna start asking these questions right um and and it's from here that we're gonna get into the very mild spoiler but like i said you can't talk about the movie without it she goes back to this guy's house to retrieve her ring uh she's leaving she gets in the elevator and she's murdered in the elevator quite fucking graphically i might add like very graphically and this is where the you know, it's a killer. It's Mild a, spoiler. Well, well, you know, you have to. You, ha- you ha- Jesus you, Christ. You, you have to. You can't, you can't not. You can't not. Okay, a bigger spoiler then. But, but you know, that's a killer with black gloves and a straight razor and just fucking goes to town in the elevator spraying blood everywhere. It's, it's violent as shit and it's great. Um, it's witnessed by Liz, played by Nancy Allen, who's a you know, a a prostitute who just happens to be in the building and she witnesses it and kind of glances at the killer real quickly. And it's like, what the fuck kind of deal. Right. And then from there it just becomes, she's taken to the police station. She's questioned by this detective Marino played by Dennis Franz. And he's fucking belligerent to her. And it's like, you know, calling her a liar. And he, but he's fucking Dennis Franz is awesome in this. Like he's just such a fucking asshole to her. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, whatever you're lying. You, you know what you saw. Tell me what happened kind of deal. And he's just like that typical New York kind of detective, that hard ass detective. He's fucking great. I mean, I know you liked, you used to watch NYPD blue, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And he, he I've never I've seen, seen every, show. I've seen every episode. I've not seen the show, but I'm assuming he's pretty great in that too. Mm-hmm. because in this he's just fucking owns it he's not on screen for a lot but when he's on screen you're like fuck that guy he's a he's an asshole kind of thing uh and then from there it just kind of becomes this this thing of basically liz and you know kind of being harassed by the cops saying what did you see tell us what you saw um dr elliot kind of being like, I think that maybe one of my patients might be responsible for what's happening 
because there's this patient I have who's this trans transsexual patient called Bobby who's giving me these phone calls and I don't like what he's saying. And then you've got um, Peter, her uh, Keith Gordon's character, deciding he wants to start investigating what happened as well using his like, you know, his knowledge of technology and stuff. He's like, I'm going to look into this too because the cops ain't giving us the answers we want. And then he ends up kind of saving... Liz's character on a subway car as she's getting chased on the subway car by who they think is the killer. And they have to team up and solve the murder leading to this, you know, finale, this crazy finale. And uh, if you haven't seen this movie, I'm sorry, I spoiled one scene for you, but this is a pretty great De Palma movie. Like, like this, this works brilliantly at times. Um, You know, there's a scene in this where, you know, a split street, split screen scene, which De Palma's famous for, of Kane's character taking a phone call from somebody, and at the same time, Liz is on the phone trying to get money, and it's a split screen, and their dialogues overlapping, and you know, and there's a Donahue, Phil Donahue program on the TV talking about transgender people, which is you know a really interesting choice by De Palma, especially for 1980, and it just is a really well-staged scene the subway scene is well staged the other the museum scene is well staged and it just keeps going you know we've got um we've got a a seduction scene where uh liz's character nancy allen decides they have to try and seduce the doctor to try and find out what he knows and it's fucking super hot nancy allen's character is super hot in that scene and i'm just like oh my god that's like one of the sexiest scenes in this movie. Um, you've got some POV usage that works. You've got a lot of Hitchcock tones. You've got uh, a couple of shock scenes, including uh, De Palma borrowing from his previous movie, Carrie, in some ways. Um, but yeah, this is a, a really, really good, solid uh, psycho thriller kind of deal made by a guy who was in his element at the time. Like this was the run of De Palma movies where he was pretty much untouchable you know carrie haha care he did the untouchables i get your joke but you know you've got carrie you've got like uh, the fury you've got dressed to kill you've got body double you've got all these movies all in a row where he was just like showed his craft and this is no exception um this is a a very well done shocking at times very sexual at times thriller made by a big studio and I don't know how he got it past them. I really don't. Because there's stuff in this for 1980 that I'm like, Warner Brothers made this thing? How the fuck did that happen kind of deal? You know, mm-hmm. like even even the scene with uh, Dickinson's character having the, having the thing in the back of the taxi and having an obvious orgasm at the same time there's a crescendo of car horns on the soundtrack. It's just something else. And, and, the sto- and speaking of... Uh, you know, the Pino Donaggio score in this is really great too. So this just, if you haven't seen Dress to Kill, you got to check this out. I mean, what they said about this on, uh, what Tarantino and Avery said about this on their podcast, they're not wrong. This is one of his top, probably three or four movies that the Palma made. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> You're still laughing about my mild spoiler comment, aren't you? Mild spoiler, Jesus. You can't. Wait, not- you might need to put a word. I, you could have not. You could have not. I don't know how I could have done it, <laughs> to be honest with you. I try my best, but on this one, I don't know how I could have done it. <laughs> I think we should put a warning at the beginning of this episode. 
or on our on when we post it. <laughs> I'll put it in the description. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about an Empire movie. Even though I've just stated that I'm <laughs> you, you love Empire. I know I torture myself, um, but I did. I was curious about this one because I'd never seen it before, and I don't. I don't know if it's actually made it to home video. Enemy territory. Oh, this 19- is. A, I like this movie. Do you? Okay, it's 19- only made it to VHS. VHS. Okay. Nineteen eighty-seven, uh, directed by Peter Manugian. Uh, who did Arena? Yep. Um, and Demonic Toys, among other things. See people, see people, I think. People, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the Eliminators, which is also pretty fun. Right. Shot by Ernest Dickerson was the DP. Yep. Um, and this is kind of like, um, like a Judge Dready, Die Hardy kind of movie where you've got. People trapped in an apartment building. Um, so this, <laughs> the setup is we've got this insurance salesman named Barry, played by Gary Frank. And he has to go, he's down on his luck. And he can get a, a big payout if he goes to the kind of the hood to get this um, insurance policy signed by this woman in this tenement. So he goes down there and, you know, he arrives and everyone's like, you shouldn't be here. You're a white dude. It's night. What the fuck are you doing? And he's like, I'm just, I just need to go in and get this thing signed. I'm just going to go in. And there's these like gang members outside. They're like, what the fuck are you doing here? They're kind of harassing him a bit. And then he goes into the lobby and there's a security guard. And he's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'll be in and out. And we all know he's not going to be in and out. There's going to be some fucking problem, but Anyway, he goes in, goes up to the apartment, gets the thing signed. But as he's kind of making his way there, he kind of disses this teenager that's in the lobby. Um, Like nothing major, but the the teenager kind of thinks he is disrespecting him. And the teenager is a gang member. So anyway, that happens. And he's like, you're basically like you're dead. And the church salesman is just kind of like, whatever. It's just a stupid teenager. So he goes into the apartment and does his thing. Um, But then when he comes out, he realizes that the teenager wasn't fucking around. And he's brought his gang with him. And the gang is called the Vampires. And they're led by none other than Mr. Tony Todd playing the Count, who's the leader. And they, the rest of the movie is basically them trying to get this guy in this building and him trying to figure out how to get out. Now, along the way, we have an unlikely hero as Ray Parker Jr., the singer of Ghostbusters and ripper-offer of Huey Lewis, uh, is outside and he's a TV repairman. And he... Um, makes his way into the building and decides he's going to help this white dude out. So um, I was kind of surprised because I was, I didn't know Ray Parker Jr. was an actor at all, but he's the second lead in this. And he um, kind of makes it his mission to help Barry get out of the building. Uh, They also get help from Stacy Dash, 
who um, was in Clueless and um, it's kind of been a, quite a bit, I feel like she's been in the news quite a bit lately, just with like talking about, you know, struggles in her life and talking about politics and stuff. Anyway, she's quite attractive and, uh, and uh, she's quite young in this, but uh, I thought she, she, she made an impression. Um, there's also a little kid named uh, Chet played by Dean Richmond uh, who grew up and uh, was in Hatchet, of all, of all things. Um, and how could I let, leave this out? They also ran into, there's also this guy in the building that's uh, apparently is the only thing that the vampires are afraid of. And that's this crazy, like, war vet who's fortified his apartment and he's in a wheelchair that's like fucking decked out with machine guns and shit. And he's played by none other than Jan Michael Vincent at his hard drinking prime. And uh, so eventually they go down to JMV's apartment and have to like hide out in there. And it's, it's just a pity that these scenes were way too short. And uh, I, I kind of wanted JMV to be like, the hero of this, but that's not not quite how it played out. But still, pretty pretty entertaining to see him. He just wasn't in it enough. Um. I, okay, so like this this building is kind of like the building in Candyman, and uh, so I couldn't help but thinking like um, it was like it was like Candyman being in his own domain, um, being played by Tony Todd. So. Very odd that this movie was made a few years before Candyman, and he would they would have, have such a similar setting a few years later with with that iconic horror movie. I thought Tony Todd was pretty good in this. I mean, it it did start to become a little repetitive at times. Like this is definitely a hallway running movie, which I know you love, uh, where they're running up and down corridors constantly and uh, so it did have a bit of that going on but i thought overall this was pretty fun um <laughs> parker uh when he when questioned as to why he's helping barry uttered the iconic line i don't care if he's white black or fucking fudge ripple which i love <laughs> um, <laughs> so um i don't know I, I think this is kind of worth checking out uh if you're curious about seeing ray parker jr in a movie I thought he was pretty good. I thought he could probably could have gone on to do other things. If you're a big Tony Todd fan, he's in like 18 movies a year right now. But if you wanted to see a very early appearance from him before Candyman um, as a villain, I thought he was pretty great in this. Can't say too much about Gary Frank. He didn't make that much of an impression. And I thought Stacy Dash was was pretty pretty engaging as the um, as this uh, woman who this young woman who kind of helps them helps them try and figure out how to get out of the building and of course jan michael vincent but uh um i i I like jan michael vincent i talked about him a number of times on the show uh this was definitely in his rough period but uh glad to see he's you know having a little fun with this one so that's enemy territory yeah i uh i used to enjoy this movie back in the day on vhs and it's never made it past VHS, unfortunately. Surprising. Like, especially with, with like, um, Shout Factory. Like, it seems like something they pick up. Did you watch it streaming? Uh, no. Okay. I won't ask. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, well. 
I oh. had I had I had it on a hard drive for a long from a lot like I I got this a long time ago. Okay, fair enough, yeah. fair enough. Um, let's talk about hey hey Josh, have you ever had the desire to see uh, Nicolas Cage do a version of Taken? Have you ever had that desire in your head? I do now. Well, you will after I talk about 2012 Stolen because <laughs> it's pretty rad. <laughs> It's really nice. it's a ripoff of Taken called Stolen. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So this first Asylum of, put it out. <laughs> no, New Image did. <laughs> so so first of all, before we prejudge from the fact that it's New Image and it's called Stolen and it's a Taken ripoff, let me tell you, the first twenty minutes of this are fucking great. The first 20 minutes is basically Nicolas Cage's character, Will, whose nickname is Gum, and his cronies going and sneaking their way into a bank to rob the vault while the fucking cops are outside trying to figure out where they are, being chased by the fucking SWAT team, which includes them like running around like fucking crazy and ending with a fucking car pursuit through a parking garage until he's caught. And that's the first 20 minutes. And it's fucking rad. Like all this insane action, cars crashing, Nicolas Cage beat like fucking beating people up, all sorts of shit in the first 20 minutes. So he gets caught, sent off to jail. Eight years later, he's getting out of prison. And, you know, and he's like, you know, his former cronies are like, hey, we know that you had that 10 million in cash that we stole from that bank, you know, Where'd you hide it? We want that money kind of thing. And he's just like, I I burnt that money. I burnt it. He's like, I just want to get out of jail, go straight. I want to reestablish my relationship with my daughter, who's now a teenager called, and his daughter's Allison played by Sammy Gale. He's like, I just want to go, go straight, like leave me alone kind of deal. And you've got uh, Malin Ackerman showing up as Riley, the former driver from his crew, who's now a bartender. He's kind of like, it's great you're out of prison and it's great that, you know, you want to do this. And of course, she's going to come back into the picture later to help him out in some way, shape or form in in another ridiculous kind of like high scene that shows up later in the movie. She helps him with that. Um, and, And, you know, and then you've got Josh Lucas showing up also as Vincent who's another guy from his former crew who decides that, you know, I want that money. You fucked me over back in the day. I've now got a prosthetic limb. I'm now living on skid row basically. Cause you know, this money that we were supposed to get from this heist, I didn't get, and now I'm destitute. So I'm going to kidnap your fucking daughter. I'm going to lock her in the trunk of a car and I'm going to taunt you until you decide that you want your daughter back from me. And you're going to chase me down. AKA the taken parallels that I talked about. Um, and this is pretty great, man. This is pretty great because unlike some of these other people that I talked about, when they get to direct to DVD phoning the shit in cage does not fucking phone it in, in this movie, he fucking goes for it. He fucking does his job, kicks some ass, does the action sequences like he's supposed to does the drama scenes like he's supposed to doesn't really go over the top as much as he probably should, but is still fucking rad. He's just this like badass fucking safe cracker who wants to get his daughter back. And, you know, and, and that's tempered by fucking Josh Lucas's short tempered villain. Who's just like freaking out all the time and has like gold cap teeth and is threatening cage all the time. And he's actually a lot of fun to watch too. These two just like, 
like taking the piss out of each other is a lot of fun to watch in this. And yeah, the entire thing's completely formulaic, but it moves quick. It's directed well, and it's super entertaining. This is directed by Simon West. Simon West teamed up with Cage in the past to make the movie Con Air, which is also another fun kind of ridiculous action movie. He also directed the second Expendables movie. So, you know, this guy knows how to stage action scenes and the action scenes here are pretty great. Um, you know, I, I like the fact that that Lucas is also doing like sarcastic, sarcastic all the time. He's rolling his eyes all the time. He's staring at people with his fucking crazy eyes through the whole thing. And I love it. There's a scene in fucking Mardi Gras where Nicolas Cage is fucking hunting down Lucas who's driving around in a cab by fucking running across the tops of roofs of all these fucking cars in the middle of a traffic jam. All this shit goes down and it's friggin' a blast to watch. And then, of course, there's your typical, like, you know, face off at the end at a fucking rundown amusement park, which fucking goes over the top and has fucking cars on fire and fucking slasher movie undertones and all sorts of shit going down. So stolen is a fucking lot of fun. Like, wow. Everyone who shits on cage for his direct to DVD stuff needs to watch stolen because I had a fucking blast with this. Like, I had so much fun watching this. And yeah, Mark Isham's score feels like a reject from a fucking James Bond movie and doesn't fit the movie at all. But everything else in this is solid, totally enjoyable stuff. Um, you know, and, and, and much like that other new image movie I talked about on the show that uh, won The Killing Season with Robert De Niro yeah. and uh, John Travolta, a lot of people seem to shit on Stolen. But I really liked this. This was like a hidden gem for me. This, much like the killing season was a hidden gem for me. I had no expectations going into this. And by the time it was over, I was like, that was pretty rad. So if you want to see Nicolas Cage doing a version of Taken, fucking see Stolen right away. It's so much fun. So wow. much fun. Yeah. There you go. There you go. And you'll get to see it. Oh, well, it wasn't that fun if you're dumping it. Well, because my, my DVD's water damaged and everything, I'm going to buy the Blu-ray. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm upgrading, so that's why you're getting it. Oh, sweet. So that's stolen, everybody. Nicholas Cage, delivering the goods. Right on. Okay, so let's uh, go over to Arrow territory, and let's watch a movie that I... <laughs> never understood why it exists i <laughs> i've watched it before and i thought it was okay uh, but i decided to give it another shot and yeah i, I just don't understand there's been plenty of movies where i'm like why does this exist no this one really i okay okay so this this is count yorga vampire uh from 1970 Directed, they made a sequel to this, though. <laughs> they did. <laughs> Directed by Bob Kelgen, who, um, you know, I'm familiar with. He did uh, directed Rape Squad, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Act of Vengeance. And he did Scream, Blackula, Scream. Um, have you seen this movie? No. I have the Arrow uh, double feature disc that you probably are talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's out on 4K now, by the way. Um, Why? exactly like i just don't i said so this came out also on an mgm double feature and i've just never understood like the idea of this like hungarian vampire 
set in modern day called Count Yorga. Like it just, it just never seemed like something people would give a rat's ass about. Well, that's kind of like Dracula AD 1972, where they brought Dracula to modern day. I'm like, why? But I can understand that it was Christopher Lee. It was Hammer. He was well established. Like you know, like they were trying something different. Like I get that. But a Hungarian vampire played by Robert Corey, um, like why? Why not just? Yeah, it, it, it just the it, whole thing seemed weird. Is this after Scream, Bellaculous Scream? I no, it is not. Oh, okay, oh, so Count Yorga got him the job making that black exploitation vampire sequel. Uh, yes, yes, um, and I think Helgen did the sequel as well. So. Um, according to IMDb, and I don't always believe this, but it did say that this was supposed to actually be a sex film, like kind of like a, por- a porn or maybe a soft porn. And then they pivoted to make it a like a more of a straight up horror movie. Um, and I actually think they shot some of the sex footage. And I don't know if it was hardcore or not, but definitely softcore. Um, apparently they shot some of the footage and then decided that they were going to reel it back and just make it into a straight up vampire movie. Mm. So it almost makes a bit more sense to me. Like I could see something weird and putting out some, some weird sexploitation vampire movie about a Hungarian vampire. I could see something weird doing that mm. or like a Hungarian game- vampire with Urshi, Ursh- uh, what's her name? Ushi Digard or, Ursh- yeah, yeah. or like, like produced by David Friedman and directed yeah. by fucking Harry Novak or whatever, right? Like I could totally see that. Jo- Joseph Sarno. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. So anyway, it's always puzzled me. But that maybe maybe that's what happened, and then they decided to go straight. But anyway, um, okay. So it opens with the seance, and um, we've got a group of people around a table. And we've got Donna Anders from Werewolf, Werewolves on Wheels uh, trying to reach her sister, her daughter, her, anyway, some loved one. And leading the seance is Count Yorga, played by Robert Quarry. And he's kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a, a favorite, kind of a Cameron Mitchell-y type, type figure because he, you know, had this kind of cool career and, you know, then still was able to have kind of a cool career and be surrounded by beautiful women by being in Freddle and Ray movies later. And you know what? I kind of think I would do the same thing if I was these guys. And, uh, you know, Fred Ray's kind of like an Ed Wood type character and, uh, and, um, you know, bringing these guys, you know, keeping them, their careers going. But hey, if I was Robert Corey and I was in my like sixties and, I got offered to be like hanging around Michelle Bauer and Linnea Quigley all the time. I wouldn't be saying no to e- either. So, but that's where I know Robert Corey from a lot of Fred Ray movies and from, he was also in Sugar Hill, which is one of my favorite black exploitation movies. Um, so he's Count Yorga. Um, he, the, okay. So what happens is um, Count Yorga basically gets a ride home from a couple of the people that were at the seance. One of whom is this babe named Erica played by Judy Lang from the trip and uh, her boyfriend. And they, um, 
and her boyfriend's sorry, played by Michael Murphy from Cloak and Dagger. And um, they take him back to his house, and he's kind of macking on Erica a little bit. Um, Count Yorga, by the way. And um, she's kind of into him a little bit, but then they decide to leave. And they get stuck in mud outside his house. So they decide to have sex in the van while they're waiting for morning. And um, then they end up going outside the van and Count Yorga attacks. And uh, um, he basically, I think it climbs into the van and it cuts to black. But he, and then the next, okay, that's, yeah, that's what happened. Okay, so he cuts to black. And then next thing you know, uh, we've got extended sequences of the boyfriend and his friend Mike walking around LA quite a bit with voiceover talking. And you always know it's a low budget movie when you see footage of two characters walking and then just they're, but you're never seeing their faces, their lips moving. So it's all this like dialogue playing over as they're like walking down the streets of LA in these shots from like, across the street it's, it's a, a lot weird, of adr work then weird sequence so that happens and then you know it's kind of filling in what's happened and oh erica's been acting really weird lately i don't know where she is blah blah blah, blah. <laughs> so anyway they go to check on erica because she you know has been acting weird since this weird encounter with yorga and they go in and that's where they find erica eating some pussy and uh Yes, she's literally eating her cat. And uh I knew what you were doing there. <laughs> I wrote down Erica eats pussy. And uh she does. And it's pretty gross. And um so they're like, oh my god, what's wrong with Erica? Something's up with her. So they go to the doctor, and the doctor, uh played by Roger Perry. And Roger Perry's one of these guys, I don't know why I always think he's the like older male dude from the Partridge family, but that's not Roger Perry. Roger Perry is just this guy who showed up in a bunch of these movies, but for some reason I always get him confused with the guy from the Partridge family. Hmm. Anyway, um, so the doctor is like, we need to do a blood transfusion. So they do a blood transfusion in the house uh, to try and get Eric make Erica better. And I'm like, what doctor does a blood transfusion in a home? But anyway, that was weird. Um, and then they determine that um, the only way to like kind of they need to go to like they need to go and take down Count Yorka is the only way they're going to like save Erica basically. So a couple of the the, the um, doctor and the boyfriend decide they're going to go and take on Yorka and they go to his house and then there's like about a 20 minute showdown and um in different areas of the house. Yorga's got a henchman that they have to deal with. Yorga, like, taunts them and, like, has a maniacal laugh. And um, he also uh, talks to women, like, kind of like Candyman, where he's got that, like, you know, he won't be moving his lips, but he'll, the sexy voice will come up, and that's how he seduces people. And I just find the whole thing really weird. Like, I just... I don't find Robert Corey attractive. So I just can't, I can't see him as this like dude that these women are like falling all over. I just think it's a weird premise, but I will say, you know, watching it now a bit, a bit older, I did appreciate that this did have some style to it. This did have some mood to it. 
And I kind of get it a little bit more, but overall, I still don't understand like how these how these movies are a thing, and how this has now got a 4K release. Like, there must be this huge fan base that I just don't know about, but I never hear people talking about these movies ever. And uh, but somehow they're still they've had multiple home video releases, and uh, you you own it, I own it, I own it on DVD. Like, I don't even know why, but, and I think they were pretty popular back when they came out. And I, part, partly because I do think this was the first modern day vampire movie. Hmm. Like most of the time you were used to it being in castles and, you know, in the olden days. And this was like a contemporary hippies vampire, but I still, the whole thing just seems very, very bizarre to me. And, uh, but I, I I got it a little bit more on this viewing than I have in the past. So I, I, I'm going to watch the sequel because I have that Arrow disc as well, as well as the Scream Factory disc, as well as the MGM disc. So um, why? I don't know. Because I'm an idiot. But um, I heard I the, sequ- I heard I the sequel's Scream- a little better. I thought Scream Factory only put out the sequel. They did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Who's, putting out- have- Who's putting out the 4K? Arrow. What the fuck are they doing? I know. It's weird. I said the same thing about Scream Factory. Some of the stuff they're putting out on 4K. Yeah, but I would I would love to know if any of our listeners are big Count Yorga fans. Like, I, I'd like to know any Count Yorga fan, to be honest. That hasn't just bought it because it's out on a boutique label. Like, is there a true Count Yorga fan that's been a fan since the 70s? I'd love to know. Yeah, because I can tell you for sure that the only reason I bought it is because that arrow double feature was five pounds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I mean, because I've had no interest in this movie whatsoever until I saw the five pound price tag. <laughs> right. I'm like, I get both movies for five pounds? That's only like $7 Canadian. <laughs> like, don't get me wrong. It's not bad. And if, it, you know, if it wasn't called Count Yorga and if it didn't have Robert Corby, I might have had a different take on this, but that combo just, it's, but I I think there's, there's definitely stuff in here to like, like Erica, Judy Lang. I I thought she was a super babe. So, I mean, um, I, again, another one of these actresses that I'm like, how was this woman like only in like five things? Like, cause she should have been in war. Like, and she looked great as a vampire too. So it did have some things going on. Like I and I I like some of the set design and um but <laughs> yeah, overall, I mean, yeah, I'll take screen black blackula screen any day. It's or just screen blackula screen, yeah. He's got a terrible name too. Yorg is not a very is not a name that strikes terror in my heart. Oh fuck. Well and then the, apparently the sex version was count 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 Yorga, I-O-R-G-A. Which is even harder to say. Hmm. But um yeah, I just kind of wonder, like, was there like was there like sex scenes featuring Judy Lang? Because I'd sure like to see those. Anyways, um, maybe there's lost footage on one of those arrow discs, maybe on the 4K release. How how many years was this after was the sequel? I don't know. I'll get to it pretty soon though. Mm, okay, well, we'll see what the next Yorga adventure. It's not bad. It, like, it's not bad. I don't want people to get me wrong. Yeah, it's not bad. It's a yeah. pretty actually decent vampire movie it's just a weird lead character like a, a out of place lead character that kind of throws it off a bit 
So if, if anyone is a true fan of Count Yorga, let us know. We want yeah, if you have a Count Yorga t-shirt, I want to know. Did they make Count Yorga t-shirts? I don't know. I would just imagine if somebody was a super fan, they'd have a Count Yorga t-shirt. They fucking made their own at home, silk screened it. Yeah. There's a fucking Robert Corey's face with the fangs. That's a pretty iconic image. Actually. And then on the back, they have Yorga for life. <laughs> they fucking carve Yorga's name in their chest like fucking Mark Wahlberg in fear. <laughs> fucking pen ink and nice. fucking hit their chest like Yorga. <sighs> <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Well, might as well talk about the movie I went to the theater to see. Oh, the theater. And, and that's the new Martin Madonna movie called The Banshees of Inishirin, starring. Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. What's um, it called? The Banshees of Inishirin. So this is Madonna's follow-up to Three Boilboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, which is a movie I I liked about five years ago when it came out. Uh, he's also the, he also made a movie called Seven Psychopaths, and he also made a movie with Farrell and Gleeson called In Bruges, which is supposed oh, yeah. to be quite good, but I've not seen. I've seen that. Yeah. So um, so this is. Farrell and Gleason getting back together, starring in a movie together again with the same writer directors in Bruges. Um, but it's a very character driven kind of dark comedy kind of thing. It's set it's set in 1923. It's on a small Irish island called Inishirin, which is the lead island. And you know, we're introduced to our main character. I'm gonna fuck these names up because they're Irish names, but I'll do my best. Um, Colin Farrell plays this guy called Perrin. And he kind of like wakes up in the morning and he has this routine where he goes down to his buddy's house, call him played by Brendan Gleeson. And he's like, he goes down to his house, knocks on his door and said, Hey, let's go to the pub. We'll have a pint or whatever. And we'll hang out. And they've been doing this forever. They're like best of friends or whatever. And one day he goes down there to kind of like take him to the pub and gets ignored. So he's like, what the fuck's going on? Why is Colm ignoring me kind of thing? So he kind of goes off and watches and sees Colm go to the pub and he shows up at the pub. He's like, yo, what's going on? Why, why are you ignoring me? Whatever. And Colm just looks at me because I've decided that I don't like you anymore and that I don't want to be your friend anymore kind of thing. And parents like, what the fuck? Like why? And he's just like, Kind of like, I don't know what's going on. We've been doing this forever. Why don't you want to be my friend anymore? And then the rest of the movie is just him trying to like kind of figure out why this guy doesn't like him anymore. Constantly getting on Colm's nerves to the point where he's like, you know what? You got to stop bugging me. He's like, every time you keep bugging me, I've got a pair of shears back at my house. And every time you get, you get on my nerves, I'm going to cut one of my fingers off. And this is what's going to happen. I'm just going to start cutting my fingers off. And then I won't be able to play my my fucking fiddle at the pub or anything. Cause you drove me to this. You drove me to cut my fucking fingers off. I hope you're happy kind of thing. So it's him. Like, why does he not like me anymore? We're like the best friends. And then it's also him kind of dealing with the fact that he lives in his farmhouse with his sister, Sirbin played by Carrie Condon. And she's kind of like, you know, she's kind of lonely because they live on this fucking island where there's only like maybe a hundred people live on the island. And she kind of has these ambitions to get away. And then he's also like, kind of befriended this troubled teenager, Dominic played by Barry Keegan, because if he can't have Colm as his friend, he might as well befriend this other kid who, you know, the, the, the town constable is his dad. And he's like an abusive kind of drunk thing. And it's just all these characters being stuck on this fucking Island in Ireland and getting into these situations 
with like this wry kind of dark comedy and witty dialogue going on in the background. But the main story is why are these two not friends anymore? And then it just leads to a finale of these two, like kind of hashing it out and figuring out what the deal is. And as an audience, figuring out what the deal is. Um, So, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of verbal sparring going on in this movie between the characters. It's a lot of, uh, Colin Farrell's character constantly being called dull by everybody and getting upset about the fact that people think he's boring, which is kind of funny because he's like, I'm a nice guy. What are you talking about? I'm not dull. I'm nice. And it was like, no, you're fucking dull. Like, you know, you know, <laughs> we, we kind of understand why he doesn't like you anymore. Kind of deal. Right. It's just kind of like this amusing a side to it. And it's just, uh, you know, Farrell and Gleason kind of playing off each other and doing a really good job of doing that as uh Madonna kind of like shows us some really cool Irish scenery, throws out some witty dialogue and has characters who are kind of cartoony, but also really relatable and feel real at the same time. If that makes sense, like some of their actions are cartoony, but at the same time you're like, yeah, I kind of know someone like that. And I kind of, I can understand why people are treating them that way and stuff like that. So uh, at its heart, it's a, it's a black comedy that is quiet and character driven. So if you're not into that kind of stuff, you probably won't like this, but the thing is I love Colin Farrell and I Mm. think, and I think Colin Farrell is super underrated. I don't think people give him enough credit. Like, you know, I, I, I like him in phone booth, which is a fun little movie from Joel Schumacher written by Larry Cohen. I liked him in Tigerland, which is that uh, Vietnam movie. Uh, he's good in Widows when he's in it briefly. He's just a guy who, when he shows up, I usually like him in everything. Um, he co-starred, uh, Keegan, who plays Dominic, co-starred with him in Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is a, a, a Yorgos Latmos movie, which is really fucking weird that Farrell's also really good in. But uh, I really like Keegan in this. I really like Gleason in this. And I really especially liked Carrie Condon in this as his sister. Because uh, she's just like this kind of woman who takes no shit and gets exasperated by everything going on around her. And she just freaks out on people like she freaks out on Colin. Like, why don't you like my brother anymore? What's your fucking problem? Kind of thing. Right. And she's pretty mm. great. And I'm I'm familiar with her as uh, from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad as like the daughter of the character, Mike Jonathan Banks's character in that show. She plays the daughter, the the kind of like unappreciative kind of bitchy daughter to his character in that show. And that's what I'm familiar with her for. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not for everybody, but if you like Colin Farrell or Gleason, or you like Madonna's other movies, you'll probably have a good time with this. It's uh, it's what it is. It's a character driven, dark comedy that, has some stuff in it that you're like, huh, they, they did that. And uh, it's pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. I, I quite enjoyed this. This is uh was, I'm not sure what I was expecting going in, but it's definitely not a mainstream movie that people are going to rush out to see. And that's fine by me. Cause I'm not a huge fan of new mainstream type movies. Anyway, this, this fit into my Chris's likes these kind of indie-ish kind of weird kind of movies. It totally fits in that, in that, uh, in that space for me, the Banshees of Inishira. Cool. Yeah. Okay, my turn? Okay. Your um, turn. Uh, okay. 
I've had this on my shelf for a while. Um, I think I saw it when I was a kid. Maybe not. Um, and I decided to watch Roller Coaster from 1977. Okay. okay. Uh, put out by, well, it's show factories puts this out again uh directed by james goldstone who uh did a, a volcano movie called when time ran out um among other things um this is kind of misclassified a little bit as a disaster movie that is not what this is this is a mad bomber movie yep um and it's yeah it's not like there's and there's a few you know sequences with Bombs going off on roller coasters, but this isn't a disaster movie. Well, that's that's kind of like um, two minute warning. Also gets grouped into the disaster movies for some reason, and that's just a fucking sniper in a football stadium movie. Yeah, exactly. So, so this is one of those ones. Yeah, I remember. I remember this was always called a disaster movie, and then the first time I saw it, I was disappointed that it wasn't. Yeah. 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 So in my um, obsession with 70s culture, I mean, especially growing up in in that decade and, and going to amusement parks in that decade, it's always kind of good to see a lot of footage of that. Um, they did shoot this at three real amusement parks, um, Ocean View Park in Virginia, King's Dominion in Virginia, which is still standing, and uh, Magic Mountain. In uh, Los Angeles, in California. So, is uh, is the one that's still standing? Is it still operational? Yeah, the one in Virginia. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And some of the rides are still operational too. And a year before, this is seventy seven. Yeah, I think it was the year after that. Then at Magic Mountain, they filmed Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park at the same location. Yeah, it was. It might have been the same year, actually. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So, um, and Magic Mountain, of course, was also in. Uh, Vacation, yeah. Chevy Chase movie, yeah. Okay, so it opens with this pretty great uh, opening sequence um, of of the Mad Bomber blowing up a, a track, and you know a lot of built a lot of tension, you know, leading up to this, and then it actually happening, and it's you know you always got to give stuntmen credit, and you know I know there were people yeah, actually injured in the making of this. Um, Including, I believe, Richard Farnsworth. Richard Farnsworth was a uh, actor that was in some Lynch movies, but he was also a very famous stuntman. And I believe his son was injured in the, in this sequence. But uh, so pretty great sequence of the bomb blowing up and the roller coaster like flying off the track and ending up in the snow cone machine or whatever. But um, so I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, then we uh, get George Siegel is the main guy in the plot. Um, George Siegel, who I know mainly from these kind of 70s comedies, like Carbon Copy, or I guess that's 80s, uh, Fun with Dick and Jane, movies like that. But he he was, you know, pretty popular actor at the time. He plays this guy named Harry Calder. And he um, he's like a guy who, like, inspects um, amusement parks. And he's basically hired by the cops to try and help in figuring out what's going on with why these, why these rides are malfunctioning before they kind of realize there's a mad bomber at the loose. So the main investigator cop is played by Richard Widmark, of course, famous, uh, you know, noir actor, like everything actor, you know, he was in kiss of death is probably the movie. I remember him most from the original. He was also in the Alamo with John Wayne 
but he's he's like he's great and um I, I thought he was a little underused in this to be honest but um still nice seeing him show up the mad bomber who is nameless is uh, played by timothy bottoms who uh of course was in the last picture show in the late 60s and uh, went on to be an invaders from mars remake um thought he was pretty good kind of underplayed it wasn't like being mr i'm crazy you know he was being more more crazy in this in the quietness of it, of, of how he portrayed the character and i always find that really unsettling when someone is just intent on causing pain and damage um and he's doing it you know the way it's portrayed is he's doing it for money um so he basically threatens amusement park owners across the country and just says if you don't pay me i'm gonna start blowing shit up and sure enough he does and uh who else we got we've got like like it is a disaster movie we do have quite a few people popping up in the cast which is always one of the great things about about those those movies and that might be why it's lumped in but we've got robert quarry's back he plays the bear um we've got henry fonda shows up for a few minutes um quinn redeker shows up and um if you don't know who Quinn Redeker is, um, you would if you knew the movie Spider-Baby that Chris talked about last episode. Uh, he sees the male lead in that, and he was in... He actually had quite a good career, but it's always kind of funny seeing him show up because, um, you know, you, wa- it's, you watch Spider-Baby and you're kind of thinking a lot of these guys aren't going to be in anything else but Quinn Redeker actually did have a pretty good career so I always kind of get a kick out of seeing his name because I uh definitely remember Spider-Man uh Tara Buckman shows up she was in um she was Adrian Barbo's partner in Cannibal Run uh so I always actually like it when she shows up again fairly short career but she did have wasn't quite a few things but uh she's in here for a minute uh, Craig Wasson for Body Double shows up, um, and he's like this hippie dude who's like sitting on top of a bomb in one of the climate in the climactic scene at Magic Mountain. And we also get Susan Strasberg, um, who was in Psych Out, another uh, one of my favorite '60s movies, and uh, playing um, Siegel's um, love interest and. Siegel's daughter is played by Helen Hunt in one of her early appearances as a teenager. So, so quite a great cast here. Um, we also get a, a live music appearance from the band Sparks, who um, put on a pretty great show in this. Um, and there's all kinds of rumors about this sequence. Um, they apparently hated it. I don't know why, because I thought it was actually a pretty great capturing of a kind of a band in kind of their prime um and a very energetic performance um so i'm not sure why they wouldn't be into this but maybe it's just cool to like not you know to be able to knock something like this apparently kiss were approached for this as well mm-hmm. and also the bay city rollers so um both of whom were huge at the time so i think it's actually kind of funny that it ended up being sparks who I, I I don't know them that much. I mean, I know the name, but I don't. No. They're not like Kiss or Bay City Rollers in my head. So, um, well, no, I, I mean, I think that Sparks. The only reason people know Sparks now is because of the Edgar Wright documentary. Yeah, 
But did, maybe, were they big like these guys? Um, that? they were big, mostly in Europe. Yeah, like I mean, like Kimono My House, which was like 1975, I think, was their biggest album in North America because it had uh, this Tony big enough for the both of us. That was kind of a hit. But I mean, not a lot of people knew even today. Not a lot of people know Sparks. Like I like Sparks. Yeah, and I listened to them before um, the documentary, but. I feel like most people, that's their knowledge of that band. Like, I find it's weird they were in this because they weren't like, they wouldn't have been huge when this came. Yeah. Out. Like, I I don't know them at all. I have never owned a record by them. I don't know any of their songs. So I have no idea. So, um, but I do know who, I do know who they are. And I do know there's a documentary out. But anyway, I thought it was kind of weird well, seeing them in this. Yeah. Like I have Kimono My House on vinyl and then uh, they, they did contribute a pretty great song to uh, Heavenly Bodies, the soundtrack to Heavenly mm. Bodies, which is not on any of their albums. They did that song. You've seen Heavenly Bodies, right? So, oh, like when I was a teenager, yeah. they had this song in it, breaking out of prison, baby, breaking it while they're doing uh, aerobics routines. And it's fucking awesome. But yeah, no. And I, yeah, I think I, I actually think they did the music for this movie, if I'm not oh, okay. mistaken. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, anyway, it, I we, it was weird were... though. It's just weird, like that. You, of all the bands in the world that could have been in this movie, it's just weird that they ended up in it. Well, and it's also weird that like Kiss was approached when they would film at Magic Mountain. Yeah, like a mega Hanna Barbera TV movie around the same time. And that's where I think like maybe it was maybe it was too close. Like maybe they had already been in an amusement park movie. Anyway, I yeah, I love Kiss meets Hanna Park as well. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, uh, like, I mean, the plot's pretty good. It's a long, it's about two hours. So I think it does overstay its welcome a little bit. But just all that footage of all these amusement parks in the 70s, and they're filming in the parks. And there's like a lot of extras around wearing 70s clothes. And it it did kind of bring me back because I, I remember going to Disneyland when I was that age and yeah. Playland here in Vancouver. And you know, it was a different vibe. And, and I thought that this movie really captured the vibe of what an amusement park was like back then. Um, so I think I think that's how this movie will always kind of have a special place for me now. And just seeing some of the rides that, like, no longer exist. Like, you know, the Skyways, like, there used to they used to be everywhere. Like, the where you'd go on, like, kind of a little gondola that would go across the park. Like, yeah. there used to be one here at Playland. There used to be one at Disneyland. Those things are gone. Like, they don't seem to exist anymore. And and I, I like seeing stuff like that. Um, and, and just the old school roller coasters. I mean, I'm a huge fan of wooden roller coasters and I, I don't really care too much for like the, you know, the super fast outside the track standing up, whatever. Like I, I like the old school wooden long wooden roller coasters. So it's kind of nice to see those in this as well. And, um, I know the one at Magic Mountain was a newer. It was a first loop coaster, mm. um, but I still like um, the other the other coasters that you see in this are are the more old school kind. So and yeah, there's other a lot of other rides that are featured as well. Yeah, all of my best roller coaster rides were on wooden ones. Like they yeah. always seem to be the best ones because uh, I used to go to Canada's Wonderland. Yeah, in, in Ontario when I was a kid, and they had one called the the Dam. I think it was called the the dam buster and it was a wooden one and fucking scariest roller coaster ride i've ever had in my life and i had gone on some of the more modern ones and 
didn't compare to that one at all. Yeah, I find they're just smoother and scarier, and I don't know. I just, I just would way prefer a wooden one any day. And Magic Mountain had one called the Colossus, and that's always been my favorite coaster. And it's actually, it's actually, it's still standing, but they've stopped using it. Oh. But you can kind of see it in the background in this, which is pretty cool. And uh, and there's a great sequence. Yeah, I think he's at at King's King's Dominion, where George Siegel has to like try and lure out the the bomber, and he's going to like different parts of the park and he has to go on different rides and stuff and it's a pretty fun sequence so i think if you're a fan of amusement parks go ahead i was just gonna say is the colossus the big white wooden one yeah 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 because that's the one that in kiss meets the Phantom of the park remember they had the fight with the fucking oh, yeah. ninja guys at the bottom of that and yeah and ace freely leapt off the beams of that coaster oh yeah i love yeah. that coaster that's like okay. it had a, it had two tracks side by side so you'd be like racing the guy, the the car beside you. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they'd have like two cars going at the same time along a dual track. So oh. it was kind of like a coaster race. It was super, well, super that's awesome. Kinda, that's cool. And it was fucking huge. But anyway, if you're, you know, I think the plot here, well, interesting. It's kind of an aside. I mean, this is, if you're a fan of amusement park culture, this is kind of a must own. Um, and you know, I don't know if I'm going to be watching this over and over again because it's a great movie, but it certainly captures a great period of time, and that's why I think I'll always like it. So that's Roller Coaster from 1977. Nice. Uh, not a movie that I. I'm also like you. I'm not a huge fan of the movie per se. Yeah, but, but I do like all that footage too. Like, yeah. and, and that's also I think part of the reason I like Kiss Meets the Fan of the Park because it's not a good movie. And it's ridiculous, but just that amusement park, like the Magic Mountain stuff in it is just so much. It's just yeah. fun. To, it's just fun to see people kind of milling around and standing yeah. in lines for the rides and all that sort of stuff. And then to have Kiss show up and play fucking rock and roll all night and shit. Can't really go wrong <laughs> that much. Oh, yeah. And I did want to mention the killer in this does something really weird. And I don't know if people do this, but I don't know. I've never seen someone like you know cotton candy? Yeah. How do you eat your cotton candy? I don't because I don't like it. <clears throat> well, see, I would always, if I was going to eat cotton candy, I would have the cotton candy and I would like pinch off a piece of cotton candy and eat it. Yeah. But this fucking guy, the killer. Just fucking goes for it? He just eats it with his mouth. And I thought that was super weird. That'd be too fucking sticky. It just seems so messy to me, but... What's that anyway, mean? I'm just like that. If he just looked like a psycho doing that, so like I'm just like all they had to do was look for the crazy guy eating the fucking cotton candy. <laughs> the guy candy who's just fucking mowing down <laughs> on the cotton candy, like <laughs> he's mowing down on the cotton candy like that chick ate her pussy and fucking count Yorga. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, since I was on vacation, and you know my trends on vacation. I'm going to talk about the two 90s TV movies I watched. God, okay. And I'm going to start with one from 1999 called Invisible Child. Um, probably the one TV movie I've watched on vacation that has made me the most angry of any of these. Uh, directed by Joan Micklin Silver, who directed a movie you like called Between the Lines. And also yeah. the movie called Hester Street from the mid 70s with Carol Kane, which is uh, I'm curious about, but I don't know what the hell she's doing making this. But hey, it is what it is. You got to got to pay the bills somehow. 
Um, so this one starts off with this British nanny called Jillian, played by Tushka Bergen, showing up at the house of this couple, Tim, played by Victor Garba, Garber, and Annie, played by Rita Wilson, and her two kids to apply for this job as the nanny. So while she's there, the husband's kind of like, you know, hey, uh, just so you know, my wife, uh, she thinks she has a third daughter called Maggie. She's invisible. You're going to have to play along if you want this job. And automatically, I'm like, what the fuck? And she's like, oh, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Sure, I'll take the job. And right away, automatically, I'm like, why are these people playing along with this? Why is the husband and the two kids playing along with the fact that the mom has an invisible third child? Like, does this not encourage mental health problems like why the fuck are they doing this right and then when i found out later that they'd been doing this for five fucking years i was like okay there's something wrong with the with this with the script of this movie right now that like okay so they've got the husband who's been playing along with this for five years you've got the one daughter who's about 10 years old who's been playing along with this for five years and then you've got the four-year-old son who's always thought he's had an invisible sibling since he was a baby there's something wrong with this. And, okay. you've got, and you've got the nanny who's just like, yeah, fuck it. I'll just play along with this because I need somewhere to live and I need a job, basically. So <laughs> automatically I'm pissed off at this kind of movie. But I'm like, hey, maybe this will have a couple of funny, unintentionally funny stuff going on. And I'm like, fucking the same year that Rita Wilson starring an invisible child on the Lifetime Network, her husband Tom Hanks is off making fucking Castaway. So, you know... A little bit of a, <laughs> a, a career dis, you know, their careers are a little bit different here. So <laughs> right away, I'm like, okay, so they're, they're playing along with this. And then we've got fucking, you know, Rita Wilson's character pretending to push the invisible kid on a fucking swing at the playground. Oh my God. And shit like that. And the camera keeps panning to an empty space. So like they're at dinner and she's like, She's like, Maggie, do you want to say grace? And the camera pans to the empty place setting. And then she's like, amen. So I'm like, oh, okay, okay, this is happening. And I'm like, and you know, and, and, and Rita Wilson's character going to school and pretending to pick up Maggie and, you know, you know, going to the school, like going off into the middle of nowhere and leaning down and be like, how was your day? To nothing, to, de- to like blank air. And I'm like, Okay, so you're telling me that this has been going on for all this time and nobody said shit about this. <laughs> like, I'm just not getting this. And then, like, and then, like, you know, and going down a slide and being like, hold on tight. The slide's really steep. And going down the slide by yourself and pretending she's holding a child. And nobody says a thing about this. Like, nobody's concerned for her health, her well being, that this is happening. Right, so I'm just like, okay, fuck, fine, I'm fucking. Like it sounded really dumb, but now I really want to. See and I'm like going with this, and I'm like, how do they keep? How did the actors keep a straight face while they're making this? I, <laughs> I really don't get it. And then the movie's trying to be like this moral dilemma type story too, because Jillian's like, yeah, okay, this is a little weird, and she decides first I'm going to go see a psychiatrist to figure out if we can do anything, and then I'm going to go to child services and be and mention it and be like, I'm a little bit concerned about this family that I'm looking after the kids, right? So I'm like, okay, whatever. But I'm just like, the length that these people go to cover this whole thing up is fucking 
epic in the most ridiculous way. Like the 10 year old daughter will be like, I'll just start sneaking food off of the plate of my invisible siblings so that the mom thinks the kid's eating dinner. Oh, we're going to go to the school art show. And she'll be like, Rita Wilson's curious be like, where's Maggie's artwork? I don't see it on the walls anywhere. And the daughter will like quickly take a painting she made out of her out of her backpack and put it up on the wall and be like, look, there's Maggie's painting. Like the length these people go to encourage this mental health problem is fucking ridiculous. And I kept getting more and more irritated with this as it was going along because of that. And the problem is, it's just like, way too straight faced in its delivery. Like it's not even like kind of winking at the audience. Like, yeah, this is, it's taking it as this serious thing, right? Like there's a scene where they go to the, to the cart, the, the nearby fair and Maggie goes missing. And they're like, Oh my God, where's my daughter? Where's my daughter? And she's running around the friends like, don't worry, we'll get her paged over the PA system. And then the, the daughter and then the 10 year old daughter, the real daughter and the nanny go off. We'll go looking for her. And then after five minutes, like, okay, it's been long enough. We'll go back now and say we found her. You know, that kind of stuff happens in this. And I'm just like, Oh my God, I cannot fucking believe they're, they're, they're placating these mental health issues the mother has. Right. And I'm just like, okay. I'm like, okay. So maybe they're doing this because the mother lost a daughter and, you know, hasn't been able to get over it. I'm like, fair enough. If that's the case, fair enough. But no, the reason they've been doing this is because the fucking husband sits down with the nanny and explains to her why they're doing this. And it's simply because he worked too much. And didn't spend enough time with her. So she made up this invisible child to make up for the fact that he he worked too much. I'm like, fuck off. Like, seriously, this is your reasoning? Like, if it was something like, oh, I lost my daughter in childbirth, I would have been more, that would have been more plausible to me. Oh, I spent too much time at work and didn't spend enough time with my family. So she made up this invisible third daughter. Wow. I'm just like, fuck off. And then, there's a scene where child services gets involved where they show up at the house because of the nanny, like talking about it and that to like make sure the kids are safe. And, you know, and basically the husband goes and he bullies the nanny into making it right. He's like, you're going to make this right. You're going to do this. And they're having interviews with child services and the fucking nanny denies that she ever said this shit to them about there being an invisible sibling. And the kids come in and deny the fact that there's an invisible sibling. And I'm just like, fuck off. Like I'm getting so mad at this movie. Did Rita Wilson deny there was an invisible sibling? No, no. Fucking everybody around Rita Wilson denied it. So why didn't the child services people just take her away? Because they're like, oh, we were wrong. Like oh the nanny's God. like, the nanny's like, oh, I never said that. I never said that there was an invisible child. What are you talking about? I said there was an imaginary friend for the one of the kids and all that. And the, and child services is like, that's not what you told us. She's like, I never said that stuff. And I'm just like, fuck no. And I'm getting more and more irritated by the ignorance of these characters. And I'm getting more and more angry because basically the message of this movie is like placate someone who has mental health problems because that's just what you do. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. no, you fucking get them help. Mm -hmm. You don't go along with this shit for five fucking years. You say, there's a problem here. Mm -hmm. 
we have to get this person help. Just because you spent too much time at work, you got to get your wife help. Sorry. You are damaging the psyche of your fucking four-year-old child by saying they have an invisible. Yeah. Yeah. You're damaging the psyche of this 10-year-old kid who's had to spend five fucking years pretending there's another kid in the picture and fucking doing shit like sneaking the food off the plates and putting up artwork for them and messing up messing their bedroom up with toys to make it look like the kid fucking <clears throat> was playing with the toys in their bedroom. This is a problem to me. Like a problem that they delivered this message in this movie that it was perfectly okay. Especially when they get near the end where they're like, the wife finally is like, oh, Maggie's sick. Oh, we got to take her to the doctor. And then the, the husband goes to the doctor. He's like, oh, I'm having a tummy ache. Oh, you better look at me just so he can say he took the daughter the invisible daughter to the hospital and everything was fine. And then the, eventually the wife being like, Oh, she died. And they have a fucking funeral in the backyard where they have fucking heart to hearts about this invisible kid. Like you were a good daughter. You were a good sister. Oh, we're going to miss you. I'm like, no, you're just fucking catering to this mental health issue. Wow. I wonder, I wish a talk show host had the balls to like bring this up to Rita Wilson. So, yeah, like by the end of this, I was just so irritated with the wrong headedness of this movie. Yeah. Like, why did they think this was a good idea? Why did they encourage this? This like this character has obvious issues that should have been dealt with. Because it was in the 90s, dude. Well, it was the late 90s. It was 1999. This wasn't an uh, like psychiatrists and everything like that wasn't an uncommon thing by the late nineties. Like this yeah. wasn't something they would sweep under the rug and play along with for five fucking years. Wow. Especially because of the reasoning that I worked too much, <laughs> you know, like fuck off. You work too much. Yeah. Like fuck off damaging your kids. By making them play along with this. Like, fuck you. Fuck this entire movie. I was so <laughs> mad by the end. I was so fucking <laughs> mad. And the problem is, it's like, it's not like it's poorly directed. And, and like, Garber as the husband is not bad. And the daughter is played by Mae Whitman, who would go on to be in like Scott Pilgrim versus the world and stuff like that. And she's actually pretty good as the 10 year old daughter. Like, she steals a lot of scenes in this because she's kind of sarcastic. Like, and it's, like I said, it's not badly made by Silver, but it's the message. The message of this movie is really, really, really got under my skin. Okay. And really irritated me. And then I'm like, and then the entire time I just couldn't get it out of my head that I'm like, I'm like, she's married to Tom Hanks. Yeah. What the fuck's going on? That's what I mean. I'd love to have someone ask her about this. Yeah. Yeah. This is like, wow. I but don't... has she been in good stuff? Has she ever really? I think most of the stuff she's been in that's been decent is because she's married to Tom Hanks. Yeah. Like she's been with him in these movies or something. Yeah. I don't know. But this is just, I was expecting it to be one of those movies where it's unintentionally funny. And it kind of was at first with all those cuts to like empty spaces <laughs> and all that stuff. But about halfway through, when it brought in child services and made child services into the fucking villains, like it literally portrayed child services as the villains of the piece of the entire right. movie, that they were purposely trying to break up this family and they were evil and um, all this shit. I'm like, no, they should have been doing this shit. 
Like they should have been looking into this case. Yeah. I was just, wow. It was something else, dude. It was something else. So yeah, that's an invisible child. Oh, I'll be searching that one up. You don't have to. It's coming to your house. Um, (laughs) All right. (laughs) uh, At least I think it's coming to your house. I don't remember, but it, it was something else. But the second movie, dude, the second movie is also something else, but in a much better way, because I watched Mother May I Sleep With Danger from 1996, which is Tori Spelling, Tori Spelling. Yeah. Yeah. This is made the same year as Fear with Mark Wahlberg and Reese Witherspoon and is basically the same fucking movie as Fear in a lot of ways. Nice. So. First of all, this starts off with this moody song that sounds like a Sarah McLaughlin song because this was shot in Canada in Vancouver. It turns oh. out it turns out it's a Holly McNarland song, which is another oh wow ca- Canadian singer, female singer songwriter from the, around the same time. As a teen girl comes home and is accosted by her overbearing boyfriend Billy, played by Irvin Sergi who doesn't know that she wants to break up and is really obsessed with like, baby, I love you. Come with me. Be my everything kind of thing. He's like that over obsessive, like you're not allowed to be spend any time, but with me kind of thing. And he like basically fucking beats her to death with a fucking cutting board, tosses her in the trunk and flees the scene. And that's your opening sequence of this fucking movie. So then from there, we're introduced to Tori Spelling playing a girl called Laurel and she lives with her overprotective mom who basically gets her kicked off of the track team because she's worried her daughter's going to have a return to her eating disorder that she had by going and telling the coach that my daughter has an eating disorder, had an eating disorder and I'm super concerned about her and gets her fucking kicked off the track team. So automatically I'm like, "Uh Oh, dysfunctional mother daughter relationship. But on top of that, because Tori Spelling's characters mad at her mom. Do you think she's not going to get involved with the new guy in town? Who's Kevin? Who's her new boyfriend? Who, uh, uh-oh, as an audience member, we find out is actually Billy under a new identity. Of course he is. Oh, no. And then <laughs> we're going to have, you know, Tori Spelling spending a lot of time doing that little girl giggling as all the oh. time, like, oh, my new boyfriend, Dad, Kevin, isn't he just the best <laughs> kind of thing? And then we also have fucking, you know, <laughs> just like him putting on oil on her body while they're having a picnic in the middle of like, I, it looks like fucking like, uh, it looks like, you know, you know, it looks like the shoreline of Vancouver. Cause they shot this in BC and he's okay. like putting oil on her at this, at this like fucking picnic. And he's just like, and, he, and she's just says something like, she's saying something like, I just want your body to be perfect. And all this ridiculous overbearing, like fucking dialogue going on. And then like, and then I'm like, Oh yeah, this is definitely shot in BC because fucking Lachlan Monroe shows up in this movie as one of the guys who happens to know Billy from back in the day. And it's like, Oh, that's Billy. 
And, you know, and then he has to like fucking murder Lachlan Monroe to like keep his to make sure his secret identity doesn't come out and stuff like that. And every time he gets upset, he's got this finger twitch going on because the camera like zooms on his hand and his two fingers are like twitching away when he's about to have <laughs> a fucking mental break and stuff. And, you know, and he's got this bad jealousy and he's just like getting so fucking worked up because you know, Tori Spelling's character has a male friend and he's like, oh, you can't have any male friends. You just have to spend time with me kind of stuff. And, you know, and then I'm like, he says to her at one time, well, you don't want me to go climb a tower with a gun, do you? I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, there's oh, your, fuck. I'm like, I'm like, there's your first warning sign, Tori Spelling, that you got to get out of this fucking relationship. But no, instead you decide that you're going to let him like rent this fucking cabin that's in the, this wood cabin that's in the, in the kind of in the woods and, and take you there away from everybody and just kind of get more obsessed with you. And, you know, and every time like, uh, you know, Kevin's doing all this like crazy fucking psycho shit. You're just like, you're just like, well, whatever. He's, he's just my boyfriend. It's just the way he is kind of thing. Right. And you see like Ivan Sergi's character doing all this nutty compulsive shit. And it's fucking fun to watch him do it. Cause you're reminded of Mark Wahlberg in fear and all the compulsive nutty shit he did in that movie. And it's just like him, like, you know, he's, he's just like, you know, he's sabotaging her all the time. He's like not getting a phone at the cabin and like cutting wires in her car. So she can't go into work. So she can't see all these men at her work and stuff like that. And, you know, like kind of like lying to the mom and all doing all this shit. And meanwhile, mom's kind of investigating Kevin cause she doesn't trust him. And it leads to this big fucking, you know, she leads to all these moments where, you know, Kevin's gets into a fight at the bar and, Tori Spelling's character is getting upset and the mom's investigating and leading to this fucking showdown where Tori Spelling character is drugged and there's fucking axes and windows in the cabin that she shuts the shutters and the sun's coming in the windows and the windows have this star shape in it to make it all moody and it turns into like this fucking Friday the 13th kind of like on the lake in a fucking boat kind of shit at the end with fucking Kevin like popping out of the water like to attack them. It's really... Yeah, it's pretty fucking great. It's pretty hilarious and entertaining. Like anytime Tori Spelling and her mom are talking to each other, it kind of sucks. But anytime Kevin's there being a psychopath and all this shit and the mom's investigating and is such a dumbass that at one point she's at the police station investigating and she's in a rush to to find out where her daughter is. She fucking backs over the tire spikes and flattens all four fucking tires in her Mercedes. It's just like, it's, it's, it's fucking hilarious. It, it's a mom who plays the mom. I didn't, unfortunately I didn't write it down. Okay. Um, I'm just like the fact that it just goes kind of slasher movie in the finish. It's just like, it's, and the final shot of this is fucking epic. This was ridiculous but ridiculous in the say in the way you want these nineties TV movies to be ridiculous. And the fact that it's Tori spelling and Tori spelling sucks, but she was in this and death of a cheerleader, which I also watched for this show and liked them both because they're so ridiculous. And the fact that this is a blatant fucking ripoff of fear makes it completely and inherently watchable. And also the fact that this was fucking remade in 2016 with Tori Spelling and James Franco and made into a fucking horror movie where James Franco's character is a fucking vampire. Yeah. No way. Yeah, dude. Yeah. 
And you can get this on DVD from our good friends at Mill Creek in a double feature <laughs> with the original movie and the fucking remake. No way. Which is how I bought it. <laughs> so okay. I'm going to be watching that fucking remake eventually, but God damn, is this entertaining. And it's, and another reason I know it's filmed in BC, apart from Lock and Monroe, is that it's directed by George Montesi, who made a lot of that shit up mm-hmm. here, including a movie you hated called Omen 4, The Awakening. Yes. So, uh, yeah, this is, uh, and also, and also the band Rhymes with Orange performs oh. in that bar scene. Before he beats, oh, the shit. I remember those guys. Yeah, yeah. Before he beats the shit out of people outside of the bar. So, if you live in Vancouver, it's great to see all the Vancouver scenery and the Vancouver locals, like Lachlan Monroe and Rhymes with Orange and shit, and just to <laughs> just to enjoy that. If you like fucking fear, this is your jam. It's not quite as hilariously over the top as fear, but damn, is it entertaining. And no, that's, fear was also filmed here, I think. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was, and that's mother. May I sleep with danger. Another nice. another fucking gem of a 90s TV movie that will have you in stitches for 90 fucking minutes. So there you go. Nice. Josh's Beatrice Adventures. Okay, I've been saving this one because, like, you know... <laughs> I try and wade through these tapes and like, as we know, I am like, I'm like addicted, especially if they're cheap and I buy more. Yeah. But I've got, I've got like, obviously my proper collection of like rarities and stuff that I ha- I don't really talk about that much. Cause I'm trying to like watch all this other fucking garbage I have that, I'm, that I can hopefully get out the door. Yeah. So, 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 uh, so like your gourmet zombie chef from hell and more yeah, like rare stuff. Yeah, like I've always like I always kind of I started this segment to try and get rid of this shit. Yeah. So I, I've kind of shied away from some of the rarities because I know I'm not getting rid of them. Right. But I did decide, you know what? I'm fucking. I'm just going to start talking about everything. Yep. Um. So I'll start peppering these these ones in a little bit more, and you know maybe some of them aren't quite as great as I remember. <laughs> but um. Anyway, this is one called "On the Right Track." From 1981. Gary Coleman? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, directed by Lee Phillips, who uh, directed The Girl Most Likely 2, which we both liked, a TV movie that we both liked. Is this a TV movie or theatrical movie? It's theatrical. Yeah. And this is like a childhood favorite. This is one that I watched over and over. And I I also know this is super hard to come by. It is. So, have you seen it? No, I've always wanted to. Okay. So it's set in (laughs) Union Station in New York City. And basically we have, um, God, I wrote the most random notes on this. Okay, but I kind of know this would be like the back of my hand. Okay, so we've got Gary Coleman from Different Strokes fame. And this is like third season-ish. So like he was really starting to like become famous at this point in his career and he was a little Arnold on different strokes and he plays this character named Lester and he's probably like 12 in this and he the movie opens with this kind of woman rushing through Union Station and she's trying to find a place to put this bag 
And she goes to like the locker area and like goes to open a locker to put her bag in. And there's little Gary <laughs> Coleman sleeping in the locker. <laughs> and it turns out that he's homeless and he lives in this locker in Union Station. So then we get this kind of montage of him like coming out of the locker and getting ready for his day. And he like has his little shoe shine kit and he goes around Union Station shining shoes and this montage is him like going by all the like regulars like there's the old bag lady played by Maureen Stapleton and uh, he says hi to her and then there's the you know kindly pizza uh, restaurant owner goes and says hi to him and And he sneaks him a piece of pizza and stuff yeah yeah so he'll like you know he's kind of sneaking around and his um he goes, there's a gym in there. I think it's a gym. And he goes there and he goes to have a shot. Gets That's where he has showers. And it's run by basketball legend Bill Russell. So we've got some, kind of some of these name actors showing up. And then he, like, you know, he gets in trouble with, like, the, you know, the, the man that runs, a, you know, the, the proper shoeshine business doesn't like that Gary Coleman is doing his own thing and, like, taking customers and so he's you know kind of the like overweight guy with the cigar chasing Gary Coleman around in the in the uh, in Union Station, and so lots of funny scenes of little Gary Coleman like deking out like you know people chasing him, whether it be cops or the 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 chubby uh, shoe shine guy, and you know Gary Coleman will like jump on a suitcase and like r- roll down Union Station on the suit suitcase and stupid shit like that. Um, and um but he also is friends with um a woman who works at a arcade and her name is Jill and she's played by Lisa Eelbacher who um I've I actually like her quite a bit she was in Beverly Hills Cop she was in Officer and a Gentleman she was the girl who couldn't get over that wall that's one of her claims to fame uh she was in Ten to Midnight with with Bronson um, so again, like another one of these actresses that didn't have a super long career, but certainly made an impression. And I, I've always remembered her from this movie, and I really, really liked her in this. Um, so she she's friends with with Lester, and she's trying to like, you know, help him like figure out how to like maybe eventually get out of there. And he off- she offers to like he could live with her, but he's scared of like leaving Union Station. He's scared of the outside. And they portray New York as very dangerous in this movie. Like whenever he goes up the stairs, like there's like someone getting shot or some cops are chasing someone. So he he like runs back down, right? Yeah. So he's very scared of the outside. Then we get in then what happens is the shoe shine guy who's like mad at I keep wanting to call him Arnold, uh mad at mad at Lester for like stealing his business calls child services it's just like you know a lot of child services in this episode yeah. and uh this uh they send down an investigator named frank played by michael lembeck and uh he's a tv director now he was in some stuff probably most notably a, a, a summer camp movie called gorp he was the lead in gorp uh but he's he's now become a tv director anyway he's got this beard and um and he's kind of like slick and he he's goes to Union Station to try and find Lester, but he ends up seeing Lisa or uh, Jill, Lisa Walker, and he kind of falls for her. And so this kind of romance starts and he's kind of like kind of annoying, but kind of likable at the same time. But as the movie 
moves on. He's kind of like, he's being really kind of sexist for sure. And kind of almost stalkery, like he won't take no for an answer. And obviously that's not okay these days, but maybe back in 1981, it was charming. And I mean, it was, I mean, let's be honest, like things were different back then. And, uh, and I guess playing hard to get or whatever was a little more okay, but fucking certainly the way he's acting in this would not fly these days. And uh, yeah, it was, I I mean, I, 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 it came across as kind of creepy and, um, Anyway, so he's kind of macking on her, but he's also, you know, trying to get Lester to come into the orphanage or whatever. But then what happens is it comes out that Lester, when he's shining shoes, if he's shining shoes a certain way, he can look at like the back of a newspaper and choose the winning horses at the horse race that Uh, day. Hence the track of the title. Yes. So he people start finding this out, particularly Frank. And Frank starts exploiting Lex Lester so he can make money at the track. And of course, that causes friction with Jill and everyone's getting upset. Um, but Lester's cool with it because he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't care. He wants to stay in Union Station. And then, you know, as this gets out, more and more people are getting, are, are taking advantage of Lester, like the the kindly pizza man is now trying to get Lester to tell him who's going to win the race. And before you know it, it's, you know, it's like pretty much everyone down there is involved. And then eventually the mayor gets involved and uh, the mayor is played by Norman Feld from Three's Company. Oh, side note. I just noticed that Three's Company and the Ropers or Three's a crowd and the Ropers are both on 2B. I couldn't believe. Oh, nice! I've been wanting to see both. I've never seen either of them, and Three's Company is like my favorite. I've, TV I've seen the, I've seen the Ropers, but not Three Three's. Across. Yeah, they're both on TV. Oh, anyway, thanks um, thanks for that info. You're welcome. Um, but anyway, Norman Fell's there, and then and then uh, Lester starts working the races to help raise money to like save New York City. Um, so he's <laughs> anyway. It's it's kind of a ridiculous plot, but you know it's all leading to like. Hopefully, eventually, they'll be able to get Lester out of his locker and and find out a way for him to have a proper life. I, and, I find it incredibly amusing. He lives in a fucking locker. I'm sorry. Anyway, I, I've always kind of liked this movie. It it doesn't play the same way as it did when I was 10, but um, it certainly still Most has movies a bit of, don't. <laughs> still has a bit of charm to it, although Michael Lembeck's character is not cool at all. He's he, he comes across as, as pretty unpleasant. I mean, he's supposed to be likable and he's playing it likable, but just the way he's acting towards Jill and then the way he's exploiting Lester kind of makes it really hard to like this guy. Right. And that's where this movie falls apart a little bit. But um, but I, I don't remember having negative feelings towards that guy from when from the past so obviously this is just the way times have changed it's just come across differently but i am very surprised that this is so hard to find i mean gary coleman you know tragically died very young um but he um i think he's kind of a bit of a cult figure in a way and and uh you know there's a few gary coleman movies that i'm surprised have never really made like he's he's kind of just fading into obscurity and this was a theatrical release and i'm surprised this has never 
really found its way past VHS. So not sure why. Well, all of the stuff that he kind of made around that time of different strokes, like even the TV movies and stuff he made are, are hard to come by. They are. And it's, I'm, it's... cause I remember watching those. Like I remember, I never saw on the right track, but I remember seeing like, the, you know, like um, kid with a broken halo and, and, and things like that. And he also did a movie called uh, Jimmy, the kid, which was a theatrical movie, which yeah. I kind of remember seeing. On yes. VHS. Yes but I remember nothing about it now and I'd really like to see it. But again, they're, they're hard to come by because he did have that charm back in. Uh, he was really cute. Like he was, a, we, he was we a loved good actor. Him. Yeah. We loved him in different strokes. So to see him on these movies, we were like, Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's Arnold. And we would love to see, we'd love to see that shit. And it's hard to come by. And I still love him on different strokes. I still think that show is actually pretty fun and, and kind of got some weird episodes too, but, uh, well, the bicycle man, <laughs> the bicycle man, the, like, there was like a, one with Kimberly where she was like got on drugs or something. I, there was a lot of weird, a lot of like episodes of timely episodes, but I, I do. So I do think if you, if you know different strokes and you like Gary Coleman, this is definitely worth looking for because this is he's the lead in this and i i think he does a great job and it's 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 a kind of a neat little story but aside from lembeck's you know the missteps with the lembeck character but you know i mean at that you know the mayor like basically makes a caboose that coleman can live in and it's all kind of decked out with stuff he likes and that was that's kind of neat and it's got some cool little scenes and just Union Station at the time and stuff. So I, I kind of like, I still do kind of like this movie and I'm glad I own it on VHS, uh, but it would be nice to upgrade it one day. So that's uh, on the right track from 1981. Nice. Josh's VHS adventures. Okay. What's your pick of the episode? Oh, a tough one. Uh, huh. Well, I probably say out of the. Nope, I'm going to say roller coaster. Nope, I'm going to say out of the past. Out of the past, um, I'm going to go with to cater to an audience who might not like the Banshees of Inisherin. I'm going to go with Bloodsport because you kind of have to because it's the ultimate tournament movie. Uh, so let's recap our titles. And actually, I am going back to roller coaster. Okay. No, I'm gonna stay with that. <laughs> well, what's let's let's recap our title. This is a hard one. I don't have anything that like was stellar, you know. Yeah, I anyway. I, I actually had a bunch of a bunch of pretty good ones this time. Like I had yeah. you know like Dress to Kill and Bloodsport and Stolen. Like there was all these ones. I was like, oh, it could be that one or it could be that one. But I'm I'm gonna go with Bloodsport because we've talked numerous times about tournament movies here, and we might as well show everybody the shining example of what the fuck we're talking about when we're talking about tournament movies. And that's Bloodsport. That's true. Okay. And I guess when I think about what I would rate on Letterboxd, if I'm going that way, it would probably, it would be out of the past. It's the one I would give the highest rating to, but I would probably say I enjoyed roller coaster and on the right track more. If Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. So let's recap our titles. I'll go first. Um, we've got the great white hype. D-A-R-Y-L, a.k.a. Daryl, Strikeforce, Mother May I Sleep With Danger, fuck yeah you can, Dressed to Kill, Snow Beast, Stolen, Invisible Child, Deal, Meet Monica Valore, 
the Banshees of Inishirin, and Bloodsport. All right, and I got Count Yorga Vampire, Roller Coaster, Enemy Territory, The Godsend, The 11th Commandment, No One Heard the Scream, On the Right Track, The Silencer, and Out of the Past. Nice. All right, so if you want to discuss any of the movies we've talked about, give us recommendations, go on, uh, or just tell us that you like Count Yorga. We do have a Facebook discussion group, <laughs> facebook.com slash group slash GBW podcast, Instagram and Twitter, as long as it's still standing, since everyone seems to think it's going away. I don't think so, but whatever. Search for GBW podcast, uh, rate and review wherever you listen, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, all those things. But most importantly, if you like the show and you know someone else who would like the show, pass the word, get them in. You know, you get three and a half hours every two weeks of two guys talking about movies that you might not hear about on any other podcast. I guarantee you no one's talked about on the right track and things like that on any other movie podcast. You're welcome. So uh, anything else to add, Josh? (laughs) Now we're going to like see it pop up on like a bunch of podcasts. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. But anyway, until next time. Good night, everybody. Good night. Mm -hmm.